Welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right, play hard. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. I hope everybody is being safe. I hope everybody's using common sense. I hope everybody's listening to the doctors and those who know what they're talking about when it comes to this pandemic. I hope everybody is being safe and I hope everybody's being responsible so we can go ahead and get back to some type of normalcy sooner rather than later. The podcast, you know what? The NFL draft, possibly the last major sporting event, event except for UFC fights for 2020. This could be it. Really, it could be it. So I hope that you cherished it. This could be the last term, last football that we'll be watching, the last thing we'll be talking about in terms of football playing for the year of 2020. Possibly, who knows? We'll see what happens. The first viral NFL draft. Overall thoughts of the draft? I thought it was really a nice change of pace. If you take a look at it, it seemed to go by faster when they did it in person compared to when they do it in person. I thought it was interesting that they showed the houses of some of the coaches and some of the GMs speaking about Jerry Jones on this 250 million dollar yacht good lord have mercy huh Woo! money must be nice boy it must be nice to be a billionaire sometimes the bravo eugenia he bought it in 2019 357 foot vessel has a gym a spa something called a plunge pool hey man don't be mad don't be mad at jerry jones i mean if you got that type of money to spend on a yacht spend it baby let me tell you something, man. If I was worth five, six, seven, eight, ten billion dollars, damn right I'd be buying a yacht. I'd be buying a five hundred million dollar yacht and flying it from the Pacific to the Indian to the Atlantic Ocean, baby. Damn, that's what I'm talking about. So, I mean, we're talking about a spa, a gym, a pool plunge. Does it come with its own hookers too? Good Lord, have mercy. So, don't be talking anything bad about Jerry Jones in terms of him buying that money and having him get that yacht, that money he's got. Cliff Kingsbury, did you see his setup sitting in the Pool house, I guess it was out there. I don't know if it was Scottsdale or Alatuki or I don't know where it was, but um, it kind of looked like a boss doing that type of stuff. I think the cutest kids, if you want to, you know, when the coaches and the GMs were making their selections, they had their family around. I thought the cutest kids belonged to Miami Dolphins head coach Brian Flores and his two sons. Hey, man, let me tell you something. The mother of Brian Flores' kids, don't worry about it. That Those are your parents. Brian, those are your kids. No doubt about it. Love the facial expressions. It was like his two sons with his father. It was like, yeah, those are his kids, man. Those are his kids. Cute kids. Cute kids. Cute kids. But I'll tell you one thing. I'll give you an example watching this draft of how old I am. It was one of those, you know, when you start getting to be my age, when you start hitting 40 and over and I'm past 40 by a little. Yes, I know by taking a look at my picture that... Uh, <laughs> You can't tell, yeah, yeah, especially if you're, I don't know, 37 female looking good, black Asian descent. But, um, you know, <clears throat> once you hit like over 40, 45, and then you move to 50, 51 like I am right now, you know, 
it starts to change a little bit. I mean, you know, we can always, when you reach that age, we can always take a look at someone who's, say, 24 or 28 or 32 or something like that and say, yeah, they're attractive, yeah, they're good-looking, yeah, they're sexy, all that type of stuff. But we know, for the most part, because of our age, it's like, you know, common sense is just going to be telling us that, you know, we got to move on. You know, I mean, the feelings and thoughts and things that we wanted to do to a 22-year-old beautiful female or a 24-year-old very attractive female or a 28-year-old really sexy female, the thoughts and feelings and ideas that we had when we were their age compared to what we are right now for those who are in my age bracket is completely different. I mean, we can talk about a female who's 23, 24-year-old being sexy and cute and, and all that kind of stuff. But we know at 51, 52, 53, 48, 47, we know that, you know, ain't, ain't no bullshit like that's going to happen. It's like, you know, not, not even worried about it. Not even going down that avenue. Not going to even knock on that door, you know. Not going to even get on that bus and ask for a transfer. We understand, you know, we're more mature in terms of, you know, no matter how, no matter how sexy they are and all that kind of stuff, we're going to leave that shit alone. You know, we're going to try to concentrate a little bit more on females our own age or a little, little bit less. You know what I'm saying? So, for me, being the age that I am right now, 50 plus one, the fact that, you know, when I was taking a look at the NFL draft and, you know, they showed the prospects and they showed them in their houses and they showed them with their girlfriends and their sisters and their nieces and their moms and their grandparents and all this kind of stuff. Now, at the age that I'm at, I mean, it's like, okay, you take a look at the draftees' girlfriends who are around 20, 21, 22 years old, and you're like, yeah, pretty girls, no doubt about it, very nice, this, that, and the other, but then you focus more on, you know, the animal instincts, the male instincts kind of kick in, and then you start kind of saying, yeah, the girlfriend's nice, whatever, you start moving then, taking a look at the mothers, and I'm telling you, man, some of the moms of those uh, draftees, those are some sexy milfs, I gotta give it to them, I gotta give it to them, boy, they were looking... Very sexy with them, you know, tight-fitting dresses and them thick thighs. Thick thighs they were, they were, they were dealing with. I mean, I, you just, you just gotta go there. And it was like, oh yeah, okay. It's those one of those moments where you say to yourself, oh yeah, I'm old. Yeah, you know, I'm kind of moving on. You know, I'm kind of getting up there. You know, another year's passing by. You know, every time that another year passes or something, I always seem to, I always want to take a look. I always want to be there when it first happens. In terms of the aging process is concerned, it's like, okay, when does my athletic ability tail off just a little bit? When do the ache and pain start to move up just a little bit? When do I see that gray hair? When does that wrinkle start to become more evident? Exactly when does that happen? When does the change? Of course, being 50, I don't look like I did when I was 40. Being 40, I didn't look like I was when I was 30. Being 30, I didn't look like I was when I was 20. So on and so forth. So... You know, now you start getting into a situation where you start taking a look at the mirror. You start taking a look and saying, okay, where is that wrinkle? Okay, where is that gray hair? Okay, you wake up in the morning and you say, okay, how harder is it for me to get out of bed? Okay, you take a look and say, damn, you know what? Starting to see a pattern a little bit here before I was going to bed and getting my, I only needed five, six hours of sleep. Now all of a sudden, it's 11 o'clock, it's 11.30, it's midnight, and all of a sudden now I'm starting to get tired, I'm starting to get fatigued, I'm starting to fall asleep, age, I just want to see those markers, I just want to just get to know, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm passing over to that next threshold, I finished that chapter, now I'm going over to the next one as far as physically is concerned, the wrinkles, the physical well-being, the mental well-being, and all that type of stuff. 
that's another thing. Well, once again, another example of okay, now we're starting to make that transition. Okay, now it's like that natural evolution in terms of great the girls, the girlfriend of these draftees and everything like that around that age group. Yeah, they're pretty, they're nice, but no big deal. Let me focus more in terms of my, you know, men being men and what we usually think with according to women. Let me go ahead and take a look at some of the mothers. You know what I'm saying? Let me take a look at some of their aunties who are around my age, who might be three or four or five, six years younger than I am. So yeah, some of the mothers, boy, I tell you, very nice, very nice. Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast Speaking about what's happening in the NFL draft, man, just get it from all angles. Again, the first virtual NFL draft, look, taking a look at some of the positives of it. You know, one thing I want to just discuss is this, what, what, I guess what, we're, what can we call it? Keep your women in check gate or something like that. Now, the Dallas Cowboys, if you're speaking about players coming from the Dallas Cowboys, such as Bob Hayes, Thomas Hollywood Henderson, Michael Irvin, Greg Hardy, Terrell Owens. Now they're dealing with uh, Ezekiel Elliott, Josh Brent was on that team, Nate Newton. What I'm trying to say is that there's the the Dallas Cowboys have had their run of, shall we say, colorful characters, shall we say. So, because I mentioned someone like a Bob Hayes who spent some time, he used to be the world's fastest human back in the uh, late 60s, I mean, he spent some time in jail for drug issues, same with Thomas Hollywood Henderson, Michael Irvin, his missteps have been well chronicled, Greg Hardy, we know about the acquisition of him and what he did, Terrell Owens, we know the knucklehead that he is, Ezekiel Elliott, some of the nonsensical moves that he made, Nate Newton trying to uh, peddle some marijuana or some type of drugs, Josh Brent, the tragedy that happened with him. So basically, the reason why I'm lining up all of these names, I'm talking about all of these former and current Dallas Cowboys, is because of the Cowboys' first-round draft pick, C.D. Lamb, kind of taking the phone away from his girlfriend, Crimson. And by the way, Crimson is spelled C-R-Y-M-S-O-M, S-O-M, Crimson. Not C-R-I-N-S-O-M. Is that how you spell Crimson, by the way? I don't know, fuck it. But C-R-Y-M-S-O-N, Crimson Rose. That's cool. I like the spelling of the name. The most beautiful, wonderful person I know under the age of 49, Sydney Davis, my beautiful, awesome, intelligent, wonderful goddaughter. Her name is spelled C-Y-D-N-I-E instead of S Sydney. S-I-D-N-E-Y. C-Y-D-N-E C-Y-D-N-I-E. Had to be spelled that way because there's only one Sydney as beautiful as she is. But so, you know, the the different spellings of the name doesn't throw me off. But you know, did you see this deal in terms of uh, C.D. Lamb yanking away the phone from his girlfriend? Of course, everybody was sitting up there losing their mind. And that's one of the reasons why I brought up these other one-time Dallas Cowboys. Because it's like, uh-oh, especially in the Me, Me Too movement. Uh-oh, you see the disrespect? Uh-oh, that could be a pattern. Uh-oh, bring up the red flag. Uh-oh, you know, let's hold on to that dot just in case we start needing to, co- to connect them two or three or four or five years down the road. All of that nonsense. Hey, look, let me tell you something, man. I'm not going to go there with that. Now, Crimson smiled awkwardly, and she later confirmed that she was just trying to help out her man, trying to be a good girlfriend for her by answering the incoming phone call on his behalf. Very nice. I mean, C.D. Lamb Associates, what's happening? I'm going to be the secretary. You know, I'm going to build something with this guy. I mean, he's going to be a millionaire. We're going to be a millionaire. Hopefully, I can kind of latch on to that, and we can start popping out some kids and having a family. I love this man, and he loves me, and blah, blah, blah. And you see how good I'm looking with this cocktail dress that I have on and this, that, and the other. So we're a team, baby. Sure, the Dallas Cowboys are C.D. Lamb's employer, but in terms of a team, man, it's me and him. 
forever, baby. He's making that contract with the Lord in a few years, hopefully. Hopefully. So I can understand maybe the avenue that Crimson Rose was trying to go and explaining why she took the telephone or why she took the uh, cell phone and then was trying to answer it. I get that. I understand that. But look, C.D. Lamb, I'm not going to go there. It wasn't, I think it was a little bit overblown. I took a look at that a few times, like the NFL officials do when they're trying to overturn the call, because the penalty, the initial penalty was on C.D. Lamb for, uh, for you know, excessive force in terms of snatching that cell phone. I don't, it wasn't a snatch. After taking a look at it, if you could take a look at it, it wasn't like a kidding that. It wasn't a snatch type of thing. It was a whoa, whoa, whoa. It was a, something that all of us men and women, by the way, have done when we're expecting an important phone call. I mean, this is a man who just got drafted. His dreams of becoming a professional football player are coming true, and he's doing it with one of the most high-profile teams in not just American sports, but in the world around, coming to an organization like the Dallas Cowboys. So, yeah, he's a little, not a little bit excited. He's a lot excited. He's got his girlfriend, who I hopefully he, that he loves, and everybody else, his family members around him. So he, he's amped. You know, he ain't chilling. I mean, he ain't in chill mode. So, yeah, I guess in that situation, he could be a little jumpy to the point to where he could just maybe take the phone with maybe just a little bit more force than what he normally did. But I don't think this was a situation where, you know, he was up there with the, you know, bitch, give me that type of, he wasn't in that mode. I mean, it wasn't just a situation was, bitch, what are you doing, you know, trying to get into my phone? Don't you understand who I am? Do you know who I am, bitch? Get the fuck out. I mean, it wasn't one of those deals. So I, I, I thought that it was just a tad overblown. It was like, mm, okay, but I'm not going to go there and start talking about, hey, having him to defend himself or having to explain himself on why um, he did what he did to his girlfriend, who, again, is a very attractive young lady. Her mother and father should be very proud of the female that they produce in terms of her looks are concerned. Very nice. So, again, Miss Rose went on the went on Twitter, social media, because in situations like this in the year 2020, what else would you do? And you just say, and you, she just said that his agent was FaceTiming him while he was on the phone with the Cowboys. I was doing the girlfriend thing, going to answer it for him. Again, it was nice. It was, but you know, in a situation like this, first time, first time situation. The girl's what, 20, 21 years old? First time this is going on. Hopefully she'll learn from the situation. I'm quite sure that she will. So we had, in the first round, you know, snatch phone gate. Then we had don't make mama mad, uh, mad gate when it came to Georgia's offensive tackle, Isaiah Wilson, when he was drafted 29 by the Tennessee Titans. Good pickup for both Tennessee and uh, Mr. Wilson, by the way. Mr. Wilson, so, you know, he was shown with the 29th pick in the NFL draft. The Tennessee Titans select, Offensive tackle Isaiah Wilson from the University of Georgia. So, of course, oh, what's up, man? I can't believe it. Dream come true. This is great. Tennessee, Austin, this, that, and the other. So he put the hat on, and he was overcome with emotion, right? I mean, of course, again, I mean, we're, young men are living a dream. I mean, the dream has finally come true. So he put the hat on. He was overcome with emotion. He put his hands in his, in his head a little bit, and his girlfriend then jumped into the picture and began hugging Wilson right in the center of the camera shot. You know, it was kind of like, and I don't think that she was um, trying to be the female Kurt Schilling in terms of trying to hog the camera time or something like that. I I'm going to go 
with the glass half full scenario in this situation and say, man, I'm quite sure that she was just, she was happy for the guy. I mean, you know, this is her man. I'm quite sure they spent many a nights, you know, in, at, in Georgia on, on campus, you know, in their quiet moments and talking about this. I don't know. I'm going to go on the assumption that we know what happens when you assume something, but I'm going to take the chance. And I'm going to go on the assumption in this scenario that these folks that, uh, Mr. Wilson, Isaiah Wilson, and this female have been dating for a little bit, so I'm quite sure she has been there for him when he's been talking about the dreams that he's had and the places that he wants to go. And I'm quite sure after bad games or I'm quite sure after tough losses and everything, I'm quite sure that she had been by his side. So it's almost just a small sliver of the fact that, you know what, when Isaiah Wilson was drafted, by the Tennessee Titans at number 29. I'm quite sure, and rightfully so, that you know what, it's just a small sliver of a piece should also go to the girlfriend as far as the importance of him getting to the point where he is right now. So, of course, she's going to overcome with emotion too and hug him and this type of stuff. So, I don't think it was a situation where, as I don't think this was premeditated. Let's put it that way. I don't think that it was a female trying to get in front of the camera and do this, that, and the other. I don't think it was that at all for selfish uh, reasons. But, one thing that you don't do, you don't cross mama. You don't cross mama. Let me tell you something. I I carried that boy for nine months and I was there for that, so that's my baby, all this kind of stuff. So understood. Mama was a little bit perturbed because really in that situation, it's got to be mama first, everybody else second. Understood. Understand. Let me tell you something, man. I'm 51 years old. My mama's 83, 85, 86. Going to be 86 soon, somewhere around there. It's always going to be mama. I don't care if tomorrow or, tomorrow I run into Halle Berry or Selma Hayek or Beyonce get divorced and she wants to be with me for the rest of my life or some other female, this, that, and the other. Mama, as long as she's living, is always going to be number one. I'm a mama's boy, proud of it, ain't going to shy away from it, make your jokes, make your snide remarks. I am a mama's boy through and through until the day that I die. I don't care if my mom lives to be 386 and I live to be 300. On her 385th birthday, Mr. 299-year-old Wendell Wallace is still going to be saying, that's my mama, I am my mama's boy. She is the number one female in my life, will always be in my life until her last dying breath. So, with all that being said, I can understand mama saying, no, 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 in a situation like this, yeah, you earned a little bit of, of, of you earned a sliver of, you know, congratulations, this, that, and the other. But no, no, the bigger chunk of where he is today is because of me. So if anybody is going to have that first hug, if anybody is going to be the first female or anybody's going to get that opportunity to be on the camera and hug my baby and show the joy and appreciation and love that I have, is going to be mama. So his mother kind of lightly tapped on Wilson's girlfriend to say, excuse me, you know, that's my, and she, I'll give her credit for that because she could have done what she did. Secondly, she could have done that first in terms of yanking her out of the way. And maybe if she could throwing her across the room, like Will Smith did throwing a Volkswagen, a whole half block when he was trying to fight Mike Tyson. I can understand possibly why, you know, Miss Wilson after this first tap and the girlfriend didn't move. I can understand her being like, no, 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 we're done here. Get out. I can see that path that she was taking. So that's cool. I get that. And again, in a draft like this, where there wasn't too much drama, 
where there really wasn't a storyline, where this was something that was totally different. A one-time, hopefully, if you're the NFL, as much as I love the draft the way it was this year, the way it was something different, I don't think that this is sustainable. I think it's much better long-term, of course, for the league and for everybody else, as they have the over-the-top extravaganza that they've been having with the NFL draft the production show that they have. So, yeah, in a situation like this, where there was nothing really to talk about, I mean, you have to kind of reach and maybe bring up an overblow, a C.D. Lamb situation, or an Isaiah Wilson and his mom and his girlfriend situation, and, and those type of things, where, you know, there really wasn't too much to talk about. There wasn't that transcendent football player. There really wasn't a, a subject matter that was going to be going down, if you, if you really think about it, in the draft. So I, I thought that was, uh, I thought that, you know, it was a nice little diversion. I mean, for those who aren't the hardcore junkie football fanatics, I, I thought that, you know, it was a little bit, I wish the draft, I mean, I'm one of these guys where it's kind of like, look, man, don't give me in, and when it comes to sporting events, don't give me any of the bullshit about, oh, yeah, I want to see the pageantry and see how well the production is and all that kind of stuff. Like, for instance, when I'm watching the Super Bowl, I, let me know, or, you know, on the day that the Super Bowl is going to be played, I'll turn on the TV and start watching the Super Bowl when they have the kickoff. I don't care about the national anthem. I don't care about the coin toss. I don't care about the starting lineups. I don't care about the production value that they do before the game starts. I don't give a fuck about any of that bullshit. Let me know when the guy is kicking the ball off, and then I'll go ahead, and that's when I'll start watching the football game. That's when I'll start watching the Super Bowl. That's when I'll start watching the NCAA championship game, football and basketball. That's when I'll start watching the NBA Finals, game one through game seven. When the ball is in the air for the opening tip-off to start the game. When the first pitch is thrown in the World Series, that's when I'll start watching the game. Everything else before and for the most part after, do not care. So the only thing I'll say in terms of, you know, my preference or something that I will go against as far as my preference is concerned is the sooner the game starts or as soon as the event starts, it starts. The only thing I'll take exception to or the only thing that I'll make an exception for is UFC or Bellator or fighting the fighting sports for the walkouts those are the only things I'll make exception for in terms of you know what this is cool this is what I want to see you know when they when they come down and they get into the octagon and all this kind of stuff and Bruce Buffer starts talking about it's time and all that kind of stuff I, I, I will make an exception for all of that any other sport, let me know when the clock starts and the game starts, and that's when I'll be able to. And that's when I'll feel like turn on, turning on the television and um, watching the event. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, the podcast. So glad that you could be with us. So, the virtual NFL draft. I thought it was good. I like the fact that, again, it was seemed to be more fast paced. I understand that each team had the same amount of time to make the selection as if they were doing it normally, but. You know, just the fact that we didn't have to have the interviews with the draftees after they were selected and Susan Colbert, who, by the way, understood, understood. I'm not saying this to say, oh, there's any other. I'm just saying her hair was a mess. Man, I guess maybe she needs to go down to Georgia, what, starting uh, starting today and try to find a essential, uh, one of them essential nail salons or whatever and say, do me right with my hair because, woo, man, it was it was all over the place, but I digress. But, no, man, I thought that, uh, you know, not having the interviews with the draftees where 
you know, they sit there and they talk about, you know, their backstory and all this kind of nonsense and what does it mean to be drafted. I thought that they always think that's a bunch of bunk. They always just think that's bullshit where it's kind of like, you're the number one draft pick. How are you feeling right now? What, 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 what the fuck do you mean? How am I feeling right now? I'm feeling beautiful. I mean, what the hell what, what do you want, want me to say? You know, your situation here, you know, your mom was a drug addict and your dad's in jail and your brother was shot. I, you come from an impoverished area. You know, they always do this with the black with the black draftees, right? You know, they always bring up the fact that mama was a drug dealer. He came from a crime-ridden family in the crime-ridden area in the ghetto area. And he slept in a car and his parents are no good and his brother's in the gang and all this, all this kind of background bullshit. And so when they get drafted, Susie's talking about, you know, what do you want to say about that and it's... You know, I'm kind of glad that they didn't, they didn't have the opportunity to do that because of the situation that they were put in. And also, I also like the fact that, you know what, those guys kind of went through, as far as the selections were concerned, selecting the player. Even in the later rounds, I'm kind of glad they didn't have people from different groups and causes and different players up there putting on a show and you know, Drew Pearson's going up there and trying to, you know, it's all about him and trying to grab the spotlight and trying to incite the crowd and all that kind of nonsense. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad they didn't have all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's not about the presenters. It's about those who are being crafted. So, look, I understand what the NFL is doing. It's a PR stunt. It's a PR move. And, you know, look, I'm a hardcore football fan and this, that, and the other. And I understand that they're trying to keep the attention of those, especially when you start talking about the third in the fourth and the fifth and sixth and seventh round, the high majority of football fans and the high majority of fans of these football teams, they ain't going to know who the offensive tackle from Iowa is. They're not going to know who the safety from Lemoyne College is. They're not going to be knowing who the offensive, you know, the defensive end is from the University of New Mexico State. If you're the New York Giants, you hear some guy in the seventh round being drafted by, you know, the, the Tennessee Tech. We understand that majority of them folks aren't going to know who the hell they are. So they have to do something to keep their attention. They have to do something to keep the viewership up at some reasonable level. So, oh, I got an idea. Let's go ahead and bring in this. Let's go ahead and bring in this ex-teammate or this ex-player and tell them to really hype up the crowd and go nuts and do their thing so you can get some YouTube clips or you can get some publicity that way. So the next year when you are going to be selecting for the team. We can get some a few more viewers. So I, I understand what the NFL is doing in that regard. But for me, it's just glad to see that they don't have some kid from St. Jude's Hospital or some kid from a Make-A-Wish Foundation or one of the people from the Orange Forces and everything. Not saying that I don't have a heart. Not saying I'm, I'm not appreciative of the Armed Forces and what they do. And it's not like my heart goes out for those kids who are struggling with illnesses, and I'm not saying all of that, but for me, it's just a matter of, look, let's just go ahead and get through these picks. Let's just go ahead. I want to get back to here with Mel Kuyper and Lewis Riddick and Dan Olaski and Daniel Jeremiah. I want to get a little bit more information about those players because I'm on with the Washington Snyderskins, being a big fan that I am, and they draft some guy in the fifth or sixth round who I know nothing about. I want to hear from Mel Kuyper and Lewis Riddick. Okay, tell me about this guy. How is he going to, how is this guy going to help the team? And tell me, because they always start off by saying, oh, you know, he's 6'5", he's 324 pounds, he ran a 5'240", he's quick, he's agile, this, that, and the other. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, if that's the case, then why was he drafted in the fourth round? If you're talking about his physical measurements and his physical attributes and he's this and he's that and you're going positive, positive on me, if that's the case, what is this guy doing being drafted in the fourth, fifth, or sixth round? 
And that's where, where Mel Kuyper can come in and say, yeah, he ran a 5-240, he's 326 pounds, a 6-5 and a half with, with good bend and this, that, and the other. But his mechanics need to be worked on. He's a little bit raw. He's not ready to compete right now because of this, that, and the other. And it's like, oh, okay, all right. And it gives me a better understanding of, for me, where my team, the Washington Snyder Skins, are going. And if you're a fan of the Pittsburgh Steelers or the Green Bay Packers or the Los Angeles Chargers, you can get a better idea, especially in the late-round picks, to where, okay, I might not know who this guy is, but obviously the, my coaching staff does because they selected the guy. And now I'm getting a better understanding of what his role could be once he is on the football team or once he's on his uh, the franchise's uh, payroll. So for me, I would rather focus more on those things than having, you know, some kid who's got cancer and going up there making the pick or somebody from the Air Force or the Marines or having some ex-football player who's looking for some attention to get up there and start making a fool out of himself. I would much rather have the focus being put on how well is this player going to be doing this draftee? How well is he going to be in terms of helping the team? So those are the things. But overall, man, I think that the viral NFL draft, when everything is all said and done, I think Trey Wingo and those guys did an awesome job. I really did. It must have been hard. And yeah, I mean, Trey Wingo told, a, told some corny jokes. I get it. I mean, you know, after the 18th time of hearing about Andy Reid's shirt, okay, Trey, okay, yeah, I know. Bahama shirt, ah, ha, 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 gotcha, okay. You know, the first 17 times, it was hilarious. It really was. And that never gets old for you saying the same damn thing over again. Ooh, just keep saying, the new, just keep up with that same material. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. And Bruce Arians sitting outside. That's so Bruce. Ha, 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 ha. So some of that stuff was a little bit annoying. But overall, I mean, Trey Wingo showed that he is a you know what a what a very talented and experienced broadcaster he was to be able to pull that off. And so to the production team and everybody else at ESPN who put that together and ABC, I thought they did an absolutely fantastic job for the first and hopefully only virtual NFL draft. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Yeah, man, this aging process that my mom told me, tells me all the time, man, this is a bitch, all the elderlies, they all tell me, man, this aging process is something else. So when I was speaking about, man, that first that first realization that, man, why am I up there, up there sizing out and looking to take a look at her mother, this kid's mother instead of her girlfriend, instead of his girlfriend, how about that? Let me tell you something, man, the older that you get, this is for all these young bucks out here. First of all, if you live, say, for another day, another year, another decade, whatever, or you start reaching my age group, when you start reaching 50 and, a, and above, it's a blessing. It really is. Be thankful that you made it to be this far, that you made it to be my age. It's a blessing that uh, you should uh, not disrespect. But also, it's like, you know, mentally 
And this is what I always say, man. I tell you, to be 24, 25, 22 again physically would just be awesome. To be 28 again would just be awesome. Physically, mentally, don't want to go back there. The stupid shit that I used to do and think about when I was 20, 21, 22, 24, I don't want to go through that bullshit again. And sometimes you think about it and you take a look at back on it and you say to yourself, how did I make it unscathed out of the stupid shit that I was doing back in the day? How in the world did I make it to 29, 30, 32, 40, 45, 50, 51, that the age that I'm at now? How the fuck did I make it after some of the stupid shit that I did when I was living in San Diego going across to Tijuana when I was 20, 21 years old and doing all that stupid shit? How the fuck did me and O'Neill ever survive to make it to the age that we are now after some of the stupid shit that we did while we were in junior college down there in San Diego on Friday and Saturday nights? Man, how in the fuck did I ever get to be the age that I am now and the health that I am in right now, which is good with some of the stupid shit that I did as far as trying to have fun and this, that, and the other when I was living in the Bay Area in California. How in the hell did I ever get through that nonsense? How in the hell did I ever make it to where I am right now with some of the stupid shit that I did and was thinking when I was down there in Sweetwater, Tennessee, or Warrensburg, Missouri? What the fuck was I thinking about during that age range of, say, 18 to 25, 26? Man, jeez. So one of the things is that, you know, when you get a little bit older, you think more with your brain and less with your Johnson at least most normal guys do, when it comes to the females and when it comes to female relationships. Say, man, when you're 22, 23, 24, 25, man, you're trying to poke everything that moves in terms of anything that looks good. You'll go to these clubs, you'll make yourself look like fools, you'll, you'll do all that stuff. And you almost it's almost like you're supposed to kind of go ahead and get all that stupid shit out of your, out of your system. Because you don't want to be doing that shit when you're 35, 40, 45, 50, right? So you go ahead, you experience all that stuff. You go to the club, you try to hit on the women. Dancing with them is supposed to be fantastic. And it's your way to try to get them into bed. And you use your lines and you use your smoothness. And you do all these type of stupid shit. You know, Friday, Saturday night, going out, getting drunk, doing your thing, blah, blah, blah. All of that dumb shit that we do when we're, at, when we're that age. But once you start hitting 30, 35, 45... You know, all of a sudden now, that shit just kind of starts to go away and the and the want to just leaves. And it becomes like, there's no fucking way I ever want to do this shit ever again. So it's kind of like, man, you start thinking about just, man, phys physical-wise, a 22-year-old female, 24, 25, 26, yeah, this, that, and the other, this, that, and the other. Physical-wise, I mean, they're looking good and everything like that. But then the mature person takes over mentally and says, I don't want to deal with that shit. I don't want to deal with anything that comes with having to deal with a 22-year-old female or 24 or 25-year-old female at my age. No. Physically, mentally, everything else in between. No. I don't want to deal with that nonsense. Mm -mm. Give me someone a little bit closer to my age, man, who might not have the type of thing, type of body that someone of a 24-year-old might have. But you know what? The overall package... Yeah, much better, much better, man. If you're looking for a lover, don't uh, don't judge a book on its cover. So that's what I'm talking about. Just my words of wisdom. All you young bucks out there listening to this podcast, all you all you young fellas out there in your 20s and 30s and such, or in your early to mid 20s, even somewhat in your late 20s, have fun now, man. Because you know what? Get that all out of your system. Because mentally, the ride to maturity, the ride to the the ride to older age. Mentally, it's fantastic. F 
physically, it absolutely sucks. One of those world of sports, I don't care how much, I don't care how much, you know, exercising and eating right and all that good stuff that you do. Woo, you want then enjoy your 20s because, believe me, you ain't getting them back. I don't give a damn how many smoothies and green drinks and exercising that you do. Once you once you get out of that range, baby, and you see that hairline receding and you see those wrinkles start forming, you know, you know. <laughs> it's, it's where it's at. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, the podcast. So glad that you could be with us. So getting back to what I was talking about, which is the NFL draft, the first round, like I said, not really a huge in terms of uh, no trades. There weren't any type of situations where there were any storylines. If you were a hardcore football fan who just mainly wanted to be centered on who was being drafted and how they helped their team, this was the draft for year for you. Fifteen first round picks were from the SEC. So for all those haters talking about the SEC is overrated, well, 15, 15 first round picks in the uh, were from the SEC. LSU had the most with five. The most ever was the 2004 Miami team with six, a team that was already a semi-pro football team. And according to a live sports bureau, the most first-round picks from any conference in the NFL draft history, speaking about the 15 first-round picks from the SEC. So six of the first 10 players were drafted from the SEC, LSU, Alabama, Georgia. The other two players were drafted from... The two players were drafted from Ohio State, Chase Young and Jeff Okuda, and one each from Clemson, Isaiah Simmons, and Oregon, Justin Herbert. So the only player that was really drafted outside the Power Five Conference was Jordan Love, and he was drafted to the Green Bay Packers. So he was drafted by the Green Bay Packers at number 26. I'll get into that situation a little bit later on in the podcast. So again, no major major trades were made. Sure, you had the Tampa Bay Buccaneers moving up, and you had the San Francisco 49ers and the Minnesota Vikings getting together and doing some things, and Bill Belichick doing with the New England Patriots that Bill Belichick does on, uh, on occasion, which is trading out of the first round when he made a trade with the Los Angeles Chargers. But for the most part, there weren't any type of like major, oh my goodness, I can't believe it, type of trades. Miami didn't move up to number one, and the Washington Snyder skins didn't move down from didn't move down to number two and they didn't take two and all this kind of stuff. So there really wasn't any drama. Adam Schefter and all those guys didn't come on before the pick talking about right now the Bengals and the Chargers or the Bengals and the Dolphins or the Dolphins and the Washington DC skins or anything like that. These guys are in talks about what could be happening. So there wasn't any real suspense leading up to these picks. And when you speak about for the most part Fans probably know about maybe five, six draft picks at the very most. So once you got past two of being drafted by the Dolphins at number five, for the most part, people kind of checked out because that's, you're talking about Burrow, you're talking about two other quarterbacks. For the most part, that's what the majority of football fans know. I mean, do you know anything about Andrew Thomas? I mean, do you know anything about Jeff Okuda? Do you really know anything about Chase Young? It was just a matter of were the Bengals going to really go ahead and draft Joe Burrow and were the Dolphins going to be able to draft to a tongue of Iloa? After everything, after those two scenarios were realized, I'm quite sure that a lot of the folks either checked out or did something else. So really no drama to speak of. And one of the reasons why, of course, why there weren't any type of trades or anything like that, like the coronavirus, what's going on, the pandemic that's happening right now in this world, in this, in this country, I mean, teams didn't have an opportunity for individual workouts and interviews and no pro days. 
they just weren't available. So maybe someone who could have snuck up the snuck up the chain or snuck up the, the draft rounds really didn't have that opportunity because of the limited access that these teams had in seeing what they could do. So in that situation, hey, that's probably one of the reasons why, again, there really wasn't that type of huge, like, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. You take a look at the top 10 selections or you take a look at a situation where there were no type of deals where a, 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 a quarterback fell or a player of any type of notoriety going into the draft fell. There wasn't the Brady Quinn or the Geno Smith or the Warren Sapp or the Johnny Manziel or or Randy Moss type of scenario where everybody was sitting around going, what's going on here? Why Aaron Rodgers? Why? I thought that he was supposed to be drafted, the Matt Liner. I thought that he was supposed to be drafted with the top 10 picks. Now we're into the 20s, and he's still sitting there, or this guy has been moved from the green room. What's going on here? What's happening? Is there something going on that we don't know about in terms of the fail a drug test, or is he a bad guy, or there's sort of something going on on campus that we don't know about? What the fuck is happening? So, again, there was none of that for the NFL to really sink their teeth into to hold you to try to be, you know, interested in the draft other than this player is going here and this player is going there. So, you know, interesting. Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So, we're speaking about the NFL draft because, of course, when the draft is over, and we do this for baseball and basketball and hockey, whenever there's a draft, we sit there and we talk about who are the winners and who are the losers and who helped themselves and who didn't help themselves and who were those sleeper picks and all of this all of this kind of stuff. And for me, I always talk about it. When you're going to be talking about grading a draft, for me, the way I grade it is, okay, the team that was drafting, did they meet their needs? For instance, so if, for instance, if the team came into the draft and they needed an offensive tackle and they needed a running back and they needed a wide receiver and they needed the safety, did they go ahead and did they get the best player available at that time for that draft pick? That's how I judge if someone won or lost an NFL draft or an NBA draft or a Major League Baseball draft. That's what I base it on. I don't base it on, well, they drafted this guy, so automatically he's going to equate another two to three wins and now they're on their way to winning a Super Bowl or now they're on the way to you know being an elite team or oh my goodness they just took a step backwards because they drafted this guy and the what is he doing and this that and the other I always try to see in terms of their need when they pick as far as their team weakness are concerned and where the draft pick the prospect is on their draft board or on the team's draft board so for instance the New York Giants, for instance, they needed an offensive tackle, so they went with this kid from Georgia. All right, well, they're, the Giants are trying to build around Saquon Barkley. They're trying to build around Daniel Jones. So what do you do? You try to go ahead in the situation with the Giants who had the poorest offensive line last season. So what are you going to do? You're going to go ahead and try to upgrade one of the most important positions on the football field for the offense, which is an offensive line. I don't care how great your quarterback, your running back, or your wide receiver is. If you don't have an offensive line that can, can protect them, you're up shit's creek without a paddle, without a, a chance to win. So for the Giants, we got ourselves a quarterback who we think can be a franchise guy. We got ourselves a running back who we think that can be a franchise guy. Now, what do we do in terms of making sure that we add longevity to their careers and to their potential and to their effectiveness in trying for us to be Super Bowl champions? Because ultimately in the NFL, isn't that what you're trying to be? Whether you're the Arizona Cardinals, whether you're the New Orleans Saints, whether you're the Cincinnati Bengals, whether you're the 
30, 29 other teams who I didn't mention, and then ultimately your goal is to win the championship. So, yeah, those should be the thinking of those guys who are drafting. What can we do? Who's the best player for our team right now, which will help out our biggest need and give us the best chance down the road, if not next season, to go ahead and win a championship? For the New York Giants, they decided that was offensive tackle, so they went ahead and got themselves the best offensive tackle available according to them. So that's how I take a look in terms of who won and who lost and who did all this stuff. I don't equate it in terms of, you know, the here and now. I promise to love. Okay, but the here and now. You know what I'm saying? Because who knows? Who knows? Every every team, for the most part, that drafts in the top 10, in the top 15, everybody is going to be drafted somebody where everybody's going to say, oh, yeah, that's exactly what they needed. Yep, there you go. Oh, now you're going. Now you're getting there. All of a sudden now, now that unit is much better now. All right, improvement. Of course, when you're drafting in the top five, in the top 10, you're going to be drafting someone who, on the surface, at the beginning, you say, upgrade, good job, wonderful. But then three to five years, how is that going to look? I mean, take a look at the 2015 NFL drafts. You take a look at the top 10 selections. Jameis Winston going to Tampa Bay, no longer on the team. Marcus Mariota going to the Tennessee Titans, no longer on the team. Dante Flower going to Jacksonville, no longer on the team. Amari Cooper being drafted by the Oakland Raiders, no longer on the team. Brandon Schreff being drafted by the Washington Snyderskins, he's still there. Good player. Leonard Williams being drafted by the New York Jets. Oops, he's playing now for the New York Giants. Kevin White, Chicago Bears, wide receiver, West Virginia. He's no longer in the league. Vic Beasley, no longer with the Atlanta Falcons. Eric Flowers, the offensive tackle from Miami who was drafted by the New York Giants. He's no longer on the team. Todd Gurley, the running back, had a couple of good years or had one really good year, but he's no longer with the L.A. Rams than St. Louis Rams. He's now with the Atlanta Falcons. So, I mean, how do you know? That was the 2015 NFL draft. So we're not even speaking, what, five years, five years from now? How do we know what's going to be happening with some of these draft picks? These guys in the 2015 pick, I mean, Jameis Winston won the Heisman Trophy. Marcus, Marcus Mariota won the Heisman Trophy. Some of these offensive linemen were Outland Trophy winners. Uh, Amari Cooper of Alabama, he won the Fred Bolitnikoff Award. I mean, all of these guys made All-American teams. So, I mean, they were highly decorated. They were highly accomplished professional uh, amateur football players. But, I mean, you yeah, talk about Kevin White. He had 25 catches for 285 yards, no touchdowns in his NFL career. You're talking about Eric Flowers. He's played on four teams in five seasons so far. Was anybody talking about that? Was anybody, when Chicago drafted Kevin White, was anybody sitting there talking about, hey, don't worry, he'll be out of the league in three years. No, everybody was up there singing their praises and talking about, oh, upgrade at the wide receiver position for the Chicago Bears. They got themselves Kevin White. That's exactly what they needed. That's exactly who they needed. Now, someone like Jameis Winston, there was some, maybe some red flags of saying, okay, maturity-wise, and some of the problems that he had off the field, is that going to now translate to the NFL, which is going to make him a problem in terms of what the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are expecting from him, which is to be a franchise quarterback. What doomed uh, Jameis Winston wasn't the off-the-field problems, per se, even though he had a few hiccups when he uh, was playing with the Buccaneers. What led to him being shipped and being let go was A, the the acquisition of Tom Brady, Tom Brady playing for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and B, the fact that he made too many turnovers. It really had nothing to do with the off-the-field problems or some of the situations at Florida State, which raised some red flags and some concerns about whether a team should want to take 
Jameis Winston was the number one pick. So Marcus Mariota, another guy, was injured too much. Ryan Tannehill came in, a guy who was picked in the first round a few seasons before that by the, or even around the same range in terms of when Ryan Tannehill was drafted to be the savior for the Miami Dolphins. He got second life after he was let go by Miami a few years after being drafted by Miami, went to Tennessee, supplanted Mariota, who was supposed to be the franchise quarterback. Now Tannehill is making, I haven't signed a contract, which is going to be paying him $118 million if everything goes all right. And now Marcus Mariota is now the backup quarterback, presumably with the Las Vegas Raiders. So who knows, man? Who knows exactly what these folks are going to be doing? So when we're speaking about the 2020 NFL draft, who knows, man? Is Chase Young going to be the next Lawrence Taylor? Or is he going to be the next bust who's, who's going to be bouncing from team to team as a backup linebacker? Who knows, man? I don't know. I mean, I'm praying to the Lord Jesus that because he's with the Washington football skins that he can become the next Lawrence Taylor or Derek Thomas or somebody like that. But we don't know. But the enthusiasm for the most part, again, that's why I always temper my enthusiasm in terms of where these guys are being selected and and all this good stuff because you, you never know you have no idea you take a look at the 2014 nfl draft jv young Clowney, he's no longer with the houston texans and really if you want to match the production to the expectations that Clowney had coming out of south carolina especially after his junior season or his sophomore season you could call his career with the texans underachieving Greg Robinson is no longer in the league right now, the offensive tackle who was drafted by the St. Louis Rams. Boyd Bortles, who was supposed to be the franchise quarterback potentially with the Jacksonville Jaguars, turned out to be a complete bust. Sammy Watkins was no longer with the Buffalo. Khalil Mack was traded. At least he lived up to his height, but he was traded from Oakland to the Chicago Bears. Jake Matthews, who was drafted by Atlanta, he's been a bust. Mike Evans is a uh, um, drafted by Tampa Bay. He's turned out to be pretty good, but Justin Gilbert bust. Anthony Barr, pretty good. Eric Ebron, no good. So we don't know. We have no idea. And in that draft, you had guys like Aaron Donald and Odell Beckham Jr. and Taylor Luan and Demarcus Lawrence and Devontae Adams. So who knows, man? There's some guys that were drafted in the NFL this season in the draft in the fourth and fifth and sixth rounds who I bet you are going to be better than maybe someone like an Andrew Thomas or a C.J. Henderson or a Justin Herbert. I'm quite sure that there's a quarterback. Maybe it's Jacob Eason. Maybe it's Jake Fromm. Highly doubt it's going to be Jake Fromm, but I'm quite sure there's a quarterback that was drafted somewhere. Maybe it's Jalen Hurts that's going to go out there and maybe have a better career than Tua Tungabailoa or Justin Herbert or Joe Burrow. Who knows? We don't know. We don't know. So on the surface, yeah, hey, Joe Burrow, number one pick for Cincinnati. Woohoo! Wee, woo! We don't know. We have no idea. Can you guess? I mean, you can guess, of course, but can you, well, you're going to put your money down, your rent, your children's college fund, your wife's, I'm sorry, presents that you need to give every once in a while? Are you going to put that money on the Cincinnati Bengals being really good in three years and Joe Burrow being one of the top quarterbacks in the NFL, one of the top upcoming quarterbacks in the NFL in three to four years? We don't know. We don't know. 50-50, man. 50-50. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us on the podcast. So that's one of the reasons why. You know what? I, I'm, I, I well, the way I look at the draft is a lot is a lot different. It really is, especially they're also determining where a team's weaknesses and where they're drafting. If a team's weakness is their quarterback position, I don't care who they draft. The the 
the road to stardom is going to take longer with a team that's looking to build their team around a rookie quarterback, no matter how great he is. I don't care if he's John Elway, Andrew Luck, or anybody else in between as far as a draft prospect is concerned. It's going to take that team longer to get to where they want to go than if, say, for instance, someone drafted a middle linebacker or drafted a defensive end or drafted a defensive tackle or drafted a cornerback. It's just different. It's just different. They already have themselves a quarterback that they can work with. Their road to stardom might be a little bit shorter because they already have in place the most important position on the football field, which is a quarterback. So it's all just it's all just different. Next year, if the teams really do start playing football in September, we don't know about that. If you take a look at the Cincinnati Bengals and the Washington professional football team, Bengals had two wins. Washington had three wins. Which team is going to have more wins? Which team is more likely to have more wins? I'm going to go with Washington. Why? Because the impact of Chase Young is going to be greater for Washington winning football games than, say, Joe Burrow is going to have with the Cincinnati Bengals winning football games. Why? Because it's much easier for a team to improve, say, for instance, with a defensive lineman than, say, it's going to be for a rookie quarterback. So, Or a rookie defensive lineman than, say, a rookie starting quarterback. So that's the way I feel about that. So Joe Burrow, just to recap here, going to Cincinnati, obviously the number one pick, was always going to be the first pick, especially when you listen to the fact that or when you hear the report that he was studying the playbook for weeks and weeks before the draft even started, you know, listening to the Bengals, listening to offers from the Chargers and the Dolphins and the Broncos and the Bears and all the Tampa Bay Buccaneers scenarios, which were being reported. None of that was ever going to constitute anything in terms of the Bengals moving away from that number one pick and drafting Joe Burrow. The Bengals have traded up before in 1995 when they drafted Kajana Carter, but they've always stayed pat with their number one picks. Like, say, for instance, in 2004 when they drafted Dan Wilkinson, the defensive tackle from Ohio State in 2003 when they drafted Carson Palma, the Heisman Trophy winner from USC. So over the last couple of weeks, I mean, we heard it. The Dolphins called the Bengals on more than one occasion to see if Cincinnati would be willing to trade the number one pick. Mike Brown was like, thanks, but no thanks. And Miami was told, on no uncertain terms, baby, the Cincinnati would not, would not, would not be trading the pick. They're going to stay with number one, and they're going to draft Joe Burrow. So all of this stuff and the pre-draft hype talking about, well, is Miami going to be able to do this? Is Joe Burrow trying to back his way out of not being drafted by Cincinnati? All of that was B-U-L-L nonsense because... As it was reported, Joe Burrow has already been studying Cincinnati's offense for weeks and is going to be ready to compete for the starting job right away. And he's going to be competing with Andy Dalton for starting time at the quarterback position, which means the assumption that Andy Dalton was going to be let go once the Bengals drafted Joe Burrow, that's now out the window. So for all those that were putting Andy Dalton in the same class as Cam Newton and Jameis Winston in terms of potential starting quarterback for a team, through free agency, or, or that would be available, that's not going to be happening, at least for now. Who knows if the Bengals are going to trade Andy Dalton, but for the most part, it seems that those guys are going to be in competition, and we're just speaking about a year where we're not going to be having OTAs or training camps to maybe even have a season that might not be 16 games, or at the very least, be abnormal in terms of the ordinary. It's always good to have a guy like Andy Dalton, who has who you know, played for Zach Taylor last season at the quarterback and knows the system and everything like that. So 
in that regard, it's good for Cincinnati to have a backup plan just in case, you know, something goes haywire with the season or you, or you need to adjust. It's more better to, it's, be, it's more better, best English. It's better to adjust with the folks that you know and the folks know them. So, but yeah, man, I mean, Burrow with the right choice. I mean, I think that uh, on the surface, it looks pretty good. I mean, he, he's, a, he's a kid here talking about being from uh, the southeast side of Ohio and his whole story is awesome and the fact that he seems to be a really good kid, being a really humble kid. And well, number one, he's, three, he's 23 years old, so he's not a kid. Anybody who's registered to be able to be in the draft and vote, he's no longer a kid. He's a man. So he's a young man. So, you know, he looks like a really good young man. He is, you know, seems to come back, seems to have high character, high fiber, high morals and that type of stuff. So, you know, I, I think that the Bengals got a, a good deal by drafting him. I mean, couldn't Bengals couldn't mess this up. Let's put it that way. I mean, unless Miami was going to offer all their picks for the number one spot, don't think that the uh, Bengals had any other choice but to draft the Heisman Trophy winner. And I, I really enjoyed the speech. Speaking about, you know, this, this all goes into the makeup now. You have, to, you have to realize this all goes into the validation process and to the uh, commitment that they're going to be making to Joe Burrow. Yeah, the physicals and how he plays football and the football player that he is, oh, those, that, those are very, very, very highly regarded. And especially when you're talking about the NFL, there's been plenty of, there's been plenty of examples uh, where as long as you can play some of your other foibles in terms of your personality, in terms of your character and all those type of things, your morals and how you conduct yourselves and your maturity level and your ability not to uh, commit, commit crimes. I mean, if you can play, that kind of takes front and center in front of everything. But, when you have a situation at the quarterback position, which is the most responsible position on the football field, where you're going to need somebody who has maturity, where you're going to need somebody who can be a leader on top of having the physical gifts and the physical talent and skills and the, and the cerebral to go ahead and be a great quarterback. Burrow might be on the slender side. Burrow might not have the rocket arm, but he does have the pop pocket presence. He does have the footwork. He does have the pedigree to be a really good quarterback in the NFL. He has that potential, but also he has the character. So you don't have to worry. My assumption concerning Joe Burrow, don't know him, never met him, but from everything that he's presented, and I'm quite sure he's presented to the Cincinnati Bengals and everybody else, if you listen to his coaches and you listen to his teammates and you listen to everybody else who has had contact with Joe Burrow, who has had some type of relationship with Joe Burrow, the fact that this guy is of, high, of, is of the highest degree in terms of his character and his morals and his maturity and everything that, like that. So where you won't have to be worried about what he's going to be doing when he's not going to be under the spotlight or under the guidance of the organization. That's, that's, that's huge, man. That also plays a huge role in a selection, especially when you're dealing with the quarterback position. So the, the speech that he gave at the Heisman Trophy ceremony about being from Athens County, an impoverished area of Southeast Oklahoma, showed poise, showed maturity, shows leadership. It showed all of those things. Of course, Cincinnati in that situation, in the situation that they were, that they were in, was going to draft Joe Burrow. The speech, the Heisman speech, please. Coming from, from Southeast Ohio, it's... It's a very, very impoverished area, and the, the the poverty rate is almost two times the the national average. And there's so many people there that, that don't have a lot, 
and I'm up here for all those all those kids in Athens and in Athens County that you know go home to not a lot of food on the table, hungry after school. And you guys can be up here too. Yeah, man, that has number one pick written written all over it for me. Everything that he did in college, all the skills that he displayed for Cincinnati, sounds pretty good to me, right? Coming from a southeast Ohio, coming from southeast Ohio, very impoverished area. The poverty rate is almost two times the national average. There's no, there's so many people there who don't have a lot. And I'm up here for all those kids in Athens and Athens County who go home to not a lot of food on the table, hungry after school. And you guys can be up here too. I'm just a kid from Ohio coming down and chasing a dream. Amen, brother. There you go, man. All right, all right. And you know what? I guess it's also from my standpoint. It's also refreshing for the first, it's, I guess you could say it's the first time in a long time that an athlete who was white of the highest regard mentioned an upbringing that was harsh. I mean, we hear this all the time for black athletes when they're talking about black athletes, whether it be in a draft or whether in college or something like that. Though so many times you hear the same bullshit about Black this black athlete, he came from a crime-ridden, rat-infested ghetto whose mother was a drug addict, whose father was murdered or in jail, brother was in the gang or dead. He came from an impoverished area. Not too many people get out of there. It's like, man, y'all know y'all talking about a black community, right? When you're talking about how bad it is and this, that, and the other. And I'm not saying that they're lying, but it's like, damn, if I was from another planet, for instance, and I came down... And the only connection that I had was the media and watching football games or basketball games. I would swear that there ain't no black folks who are who came from anywhere but an impoverished, crime-ridden community or ghetto. I mean, damn, it's like the white folks are coming up in you know, two-parent homes. They've got this and they've got that. And they're in a nice neighborhood and they're going to nice schools and they've got nice things and... And, and, and the mother is wonderful and the dad is hardworking and the sisters are divided, uh, is doing something wonderful. It's like, damn, why is it that we always have to bring that up when it comes to the black athletes? When I'm starting to watch a college football game or the draft or something like that, well, once you make the pros, I mean, for the most part, you, you, that's kind of like a backstory because now you're getting paid. So maybe if you do something stupid, they might bring up the background to the, you know, if he's out there doing something stupid in terms of driving under the influence or some domestic dispute or some type of nonsense that an NFL player will do, they might bring up the, well, you know, he's from a bad area and this is his background to kind of justify or kind of to explain the reason why he's doing those things now as a 25, 26, 27-year-old man who's making millions of dollars or at least six figures at the very least. But, you know, in college, it's always the same damn thing. You know, this black man he came from, or this black kid, he came from an impoverished area and he came from 22 different siblings and they don't know who his parents are and all this kind of bullshit and his mom was a crackhead. And I was just like, damn, man, really? Can I, can I, for once, for one of these ESPN, ABC, Fox, CBS, can I get one story about a black person or a black kid who was talking about, you know what, this guy came from an affluent neighborhood, his father's a doctor, his mother's a lawyer, his sister is valedictorian, I mean, the kid drove around in high school in a Mercedes, he's got the best of everything, I mean, can we hear one of them stories, um, they, they exist, I'm here to tell you right now that not every black kid who plays college football or plays college basketball came from an impoverished ghetto. I'm telling you that right now. 
He didn't come from an area where, you know, he had to cross over dead bodies and he was being recruited by gangs and all this kind of bullshit, man. I live in a really nice community right now where my neighbor's black, my neighbor next door to me is black, the person up the street is black, the person across from me is Hispanic, the person down the street is black. We got more black folks living in this very nice, wonderful neighborhood that I live in right now where I can walk the streets any fucking time that I want to and not have to worry about getting mugged or getting shot or seeing a dead body or being sold drugs to. I mean, damn, they do exist in our community. They do exist in this world. And it's like every time I hear the same nonsense, oh, this kid came from a, this kid is such a success story. He came in from a, such a bad background to where his father was murdered. And yeah, it's like, damn, man, can we kind of go ahead and do something else? Because Lord knows if Joe Burrow was black, I had no idea that Joe Burrow came from an impoverished area in uh, Southeast Ohio. I didn't know. They never mentioned that when they were talking about Joe Burrow. I heard the story of Joe Burrow about, you know, he came in as a shy kid from a small town in Ohio and he was there and, you know, got the, got the rough treatment as a freshman from Urban Meyer and, uh, you know, but he saw something in him and it was really great. But, you know, unfortunately, JT Barrett was the starting quarterback and then uh, Dwayne Haskins was the quarterback. And because of that, he decided that he was going to go down to LSU and he went down to LSU and he won his teammates over and he was embraced and his father's a football coach. And I heard all that stuff about Joe Burrow. The background on Joe Burrow was all of that, but it didn't include he came from an impoverished area. How broke was Joe Burrow? That's what I want to know. How rough was it for Joe Burrow? Not that I'm doubting him. The only reason why I'm saying that is because, man, when it comes to a black athlete with these show, with these programs, man, they're gonna they're gonna go on and on and on and on about what the family members how how fucked up they were and how the area that he was living in was so messed up and crime ridden. They're not gonna spare any expense. I'm talking about that. So I want to hear from Joe Burrow a little bit more about how bad of an area is Athens, Ohio. I mean, what is it? Are we talking about meth labs? Are we talking about people getting shot? I mean, how many of the folks are ODing? How many times do the police have to go out there? I mean, come on, man. Pretend that, uh, pretend for instance that Athens County is like a place in Baltimore or Southeast D.C., or Liberty Heights, or or someplace in LA, East LA, or something like that, or North Las Vegas in some places. So, I mean, treat Athens County like you would go ahead, like if you would say, for instance, a black or brown type of community that's going through some trials and tribulations and going through some down times or 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 or, or that situation. I want to hear more about these white athletes coming from Appalachia, coming from trailer parks. I want to hear about some of the struggles that they had. I want to hear about some of those white areas in this country that are dealing with bad situations such as drug problems and crimes and murders and unemployment and drug use and all of those type of things. Because damn, every time we bring up an athlete who's black and we talk about where they're from and this, that, and the other, you know they're going to be diving into that. So it was nice to hear Joe Burrow kind of bring that up and talk about that. And he did it in a classy way. He didn't go on and on. He didn't go out there and shame. And he wasn't trying to bring anybody down. He wasn't trying to place blame or anything like that. But he did it in a very mature way. And that was, it was great. It was wonderful. And, I, you know, again, you, you hear something like that. You hear the humility. You hear the, 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 the genuine, the genuineness in his voice. And it's like, yeah, man, that's a leader. I mean, there's someone right there who I want to lead. I want him leading me. You know, that's, that's someone who... I will block a little bit harder for. I will run a little bit faster for. I don't, he's the leader. So in that situation, the Cincinnati Bengals did a good job. 
in drafting Joe Burrow. And I think Joe Burrow should have been. He earned the right. Despite Tua and his injury and all that type of stuff with the injury history and everything, Joe Burrow, all in one year, earned the opportunity to be the number one draft pick regardless of who was drafting him. And he, and he did a great job. He really did a great job. So with Burrow, I guess moving forward, and I'm moving forward here on the Wendell's World of Sports Podcast. Wendell Wallace, your host. Hello. So I'm thinking and I'm wondering out loud, and I'm telling this and I'm saying this on the podcast to you. Please listen. So how is this going to end for Joe Burrow? What do you think? Because now Hollywood, I bet you in the year 2047, someone needs to kind of like write down some notes and kind of do some things and write do some interviews because Hollywood could use this story in 2047. Talking about a quarterback from a small, poverty-stricken town, going to state university, not making it there before going down south to a winning program and then turning his whole life around and turning the team and winning the championship. And I'm quite sure with Hollywood, you know, based on true facts or based on a true story, I'm quite sure, you know, the, Bo, the Joe Burrow story, I'm quite sure that's where he'll, where he'll find his find his girlfriend and wife and then the coach will probably have some problems and in the championship game they'll need a miracle with no time left to win the game by one point and all that type of stuff with Joe Burrow running around for 15 minutes in the backfield and and, and dodging and ducking and getting past all of the defenders and then blindly as he's getting sacked by 15 people that's right 15 people this is Hollywood you don't need to go ahead and have 11 people on the field on defense when you're talking about Hollywood making a movie so when Joe Burrow is being sacked by 15 people and they mean planted under the stadium the ball is going to be going in the air hitting the wide receiver 99 yards away for the touchdown and then the parents are going to run out on the field and then he's going to get up and see his girlfriend in front of 50, you know, 85 5,000 people in the stands and he's going to run to the stands and hug her and it's going to be a wonderful ending to the story, right? Isn't that going to be the Joe Burrow story in 2047 by Miramar? If Harvey Weinstein never gets out of jail, which he won't, making that type of movie. But really, how is the story, how is the movie for Joe Burrow going to end? Is this the end of the movie, him being drafted by the Cincinnati Bengals after winning a championship, right? after winning a championship and the Heisman Trophy and this miraculous miraculous improvement that he's made, is that going to be the end of the story or is the Joe Burrow story just now in intermission? And once you come back from the break, the second half of this, of this story is going to be about him turning around the Cincinnati Bengals, a team that has never won a championship, a team that has been a doormat, a team that has been a laughingstock. Now, some of that, as Mel Kuyper pointed out, very astutely, some of that stuff is myth more than fact. Did you speak about the Cincinnati Bengals? They haven't. They, they, they've had ten win seasons uh, over the past decade. They have won more games than say the Dallas Cowboys, America's team, and the Los Angeles Chargers. Thank you very much, Marvin Lewis. But the Cincinnati Bengals, their reputation is that of a team of or a franchise of dysfunction. Now you have someone like Joe, Joe Burrow. Coming in, is she going to be able to do for the Cincinnati Bengals that Ken Anderson couldn't do win a Super Bowl, Boomer Siason couldn't do, Achilles Smith couldn't do, I mean, Andy Dalton couldn't do? What is the story going to be now for Joe Burrow being the quarterback for the Cincinnati Bengals? How long is it going to take for him to turn it around? Now, again, he's been compared to Tom Brady in terms of pocket feel and accuracy and 
improvisational skills. He's got the weapons around him. As you speak about A.J. Green and Joe Mixon, Joe Ross, John Ross, excuse me, Tyler Boyd. So he's got some speed from Ross. He's got some number one receiving capabilities of A.J. Green. He's got a good bag in Joe Mixon. So some of the stuff is there. He's also also going to have a last season's first-round pick offensive tackle, Jonah Wilson. Jonah Williams, excuse me, back after injury. So, I mean, you know, that should be that should be an interesting thing. One thing that I want to address here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast, yours truly, Wendell Wallace, speaking, is as much as, you know, we hear the compliments, I mean, talking about Joe Burrow being the next Tom Brady, the only as of right now, could you imagine Cincinnati Bengals fan? Let me let me say this to you. If Joe Burrow is going to be half the quarterback that Tom Brady is, you're talking about a guy that is going to be playing 10 and a half, 11, 12 years, is going to be winning three Super Bowl championships, is going to be going to the Super Bowl at least five times. I think that I mean, if the guy can be just half as good as Tom Brady's shit right now, well, I bet you Cincinnati Bengals fans, ticket holders, advertisers, Mike Brown and everybody else, shit, man, just give us 25%. Shit, give us 20% of what uh, Tom Brady was in terms of the potential that Joe Burrow has to be. Man, as far as, you know, Tom Brady stuff, in terms of the similarities right now, let me tell you the similarities right now between Tom Brady and Joe Burrow. They're white, blonde hair, they play quarterback, and they seem to be pretty good guys, really good guys. Other than that, I don't, there ain't no, no more Tom Brady Comparisons, no more, no more. Well, he had the accuracy. We don't know about that. We're, you're speaking about Tom Brady in the pros compared to Joe Burrow in college. Huge difference, my man. Huge difference. Danny Warfel, Danny Warfel of Florida, who won the Heisman Trophy, he had great accuracy in college, but that arm strength, not so much in the pros. Before we start talking about improvisational skills and everything else concerning physical attributes and comparing them to Tom Brady. Slow down. Let's see how the man. Let's see how the man does against his own teammates, against the defense that he's going to be going against in practice. Before we start talking about comparisons to Tom Brady, shit. Most of y'all who are making comparisons to Tom Brady concerning Joe Burrow, most of y'all didn't even see Tom Brady play in uh, college. So come on, man. Let's just slow down a little bit on that. The other thing is the fact that, well, another point that they brought up was, you know, Burrow is seven and zero. He went seven and zero last season against ranked teams, and that, that's true. But then if you take a look at some of those games, some of those teams that he played against, when you're speaking about you know Joe Burrow going 7-0, and at the time that they were ranked, they were some bad defenses. I mean, yeah, Joe Burrow went 31-39, 471 yards, four touchdowns, and an interception against Texas on the road in week two. Do you realize how bad Texas was on defense? especially in the passing game with all those underclassmen, with all those young talent that they had on that squad. They were ranked 125th in passing defense. Against Oklahoma, Jalen Hurts threw three touchdown passes and had 366 total yards. It's not like Joe Burrow was the only one out there doing work against the young, inexperienced secondary against Texas. Okay, Against Oklahoma in that championship game where he threw, what, what 18,000 touchdowns? I mean, this was a guy, I mean, Oklahoma was, you know, Ranked 46 in the country in pass defense. What was Oklahoma's? What had been Oklahoma's Achilles heel in terms of the reason why they ain't winning more championships? It's because of their defense and their Lincoln Riley. How many different defensive coordinators that Riley has had to go through has had to go through since being a coach at Oklahoma? 
So, yeah, fantastic. I mean, you know, Burrow, the championship, uh, the college football playoff semifinals, the final four. You know, he was 29-39, 493 yards, seven touchdowns against Oklahoma. Ooh, nationally ranked Oklahoma. Ooh, in a big-time game. Yeah, uh, Oklahoma, if you take a look. And look, I understand you can even put in the context. They're going to, Oklahoma plays in the league where pulling up 400 yards passing and scoring 45, 48 points is of the norm. In that conference, but this is a team speaking about the Oklahoma Sooners last season who gave up 282 yards and five touchdowns to some guy for Iowa State, some quarterback named Brock Purdy. Purdy, which was pretty ridiculous if you're going to be asking me about that. So, yeah, let's just kind of slow down a little bit when we want to talk about how great Joe Burrow can be or transferring the skills Joe Burrow had to the pro game. The 7 and 0, I mean, yeah, against. Georgia against Clemson, you're talking about top five in total defenses. You're speaking about Auburn, who had four defensive players drafted in the NFL. So, yeah, I'm not saying this is a complete diss in terms of the 7-0 and and oh my goodness gracious, but let's, I'm not going to be taking too much stock into that in terms of whether I'm going to be deciding if Joe Burrow can be a, 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 a good quarterback or above-average quarterback in the next couple of years. So let's, let's just slow down on that. And... Yeah, of course, Joe Burrow has been studying the playbook, but then, then again, when you don't have the opportunity for training camps or for you know, off-season workouts, getting together with the fellows, I mean, those things are important. Again, the build some chemistry and those type of things. Now, I don't know what the regulations are in Ohio or anywhere else. I mean, maybe those guys, if you're speaking about A.J. Green, I don't know where those guys live in the off-season, but maybe somehow, some way, A.J. Green, who's making a decent amount of money, I mean, maybe... There's somewhere where they can go, maybe in Florida or Georgia somewhere where those guys can get together, maybe go to a resort or somewhere, maybe rent out a house for a week. I don't know. Maybe go somewhere and, you know, work out, get to know each other, do those type of things. You know, chemistry is very important. I mean, Tom Brady did that with his receivers when he was in New England. Peyton Manning did that with his receivers when he was in Indianapolis and Denver. So, I mean, those are some things in terms, if you want to see Joe Burrow, his success starts sooner rather than later. I mean, these are some of the things that maybe they maybe they should think about. Again, everything is going to be up in the air because of this pandemic in terms of what states are going to be easing off some of their quarantine restrictions. But uh, maybe there's a possibility that the uh, Bengals or maybe some of the players in terms of the wide receivers, tight ends, and the quarterback can get together and uh, go ahead and work out on some things. But you know, in all situations, in everything, the, the, the Bengals did the right thing, without question, in drafting Joe Burrow, number one. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going on today 
hope everybody's being safe. I hope everybody is being responsible. I hope everybody is doing what they need need to do to keep themselves safe and happy and not losing their mind. For me, I'm doing a lot of things that I wouldn't be doing in terms of trying to see what I can do. I'm not working right now, so I have to do some things. I'm watching this 90-day what is the show? This new show that I've been hooked on, TLC. 90 days after, I guess these folks are going someplace and trying to get hooked up and seeing in a couple of weeks that this is the guy that I want to marry and all this kind of nonsense. And Look, one thing we know about reality television is not reality. And that's one of the reasons why 90 Day Fiance before the 90 days. Yeah, I have it on in the background. <clears throat> that's one thing why I love sports so much because sports really is reality in terms of its true reality, in terms of when the games are being played. I mean, except for wrestling, which is predetermined, football, baseball, basketball, any type of sport, you, you don't know who's going to win. You don't know who's going to lose. You don't know how they're going to win. You don't know how they're going to lose. You're actually going to have to watch the games to see what happens. You know, that, that's reality. That's true reality. No scripts, no none of that kind of stuff. So that's the reason why I love sports so much. But getting back to this 90 days fiance, 90 days in. So these these clowns go out there, and a lot of them, I guess they go overseas. Um, these Americans, they go overseas. They go to the Netherlands. They go to Australia. They go to Paris. They go to all these other places, Croatia and stuff, and they try to look for their, their, their soulmate or their mate. And, of course, I mean, you know, 90 days. I mean, so or I guess they have a couple of weeks. And, of course, and then you can tell right away if someone's going to be your soulmate in two weeks. I mean, give me a break. I mean, you know, within two hours, like, yeah, we see you look good. I want to have sex with you. Yeah, okay, you're, you're my soulmate. Let's go. But uh, so it's like like a couple of these guys go down to the Philippines and all this other stuff. And it's like, you know, look, I'll tell you one thing. I'm highly attracted to black women, number one. Uh, that's number one with a bullet always will be. You know, love black women. Love the way they look and all this kind of stuff. But I also love Asian women. Not because they like to dote on you and all that kind of nonsense. I'm just physically attracted to Asian women. So, you know, what caught my eye was a couple of these guys going down to the Philippines and trying to go after these girls and this, that, and the other. And that's exactly what some of them are, the girls. And it's like, you see this nonsense. And it's like the one guy is 45 and the one girl is 21. And the other guy is 54 and the other girl is 22. And the one guy is 24 and the other one is 51. It's like... Y'all know this isn't going to work, right? And it's like you got three weeks to make a decision on whether you want to get engaged. And two weeks in, these clowns are they're talking about, yeah, you know, I think I want to pr propose to her. Or I want to propose to him. And it's like, what are y'all talking about? Again, I understand it's a reality show. I get it. I understand it. But it just kind of makes me chuckle. It's entertaining for the most part. I know if I was working and had my normal routine, that I would have absolutely no interest in this. But then again, when you're sitting around the house, and you're doing nothing, and you're looking for something to do, and you have this marathon going on about 90 days in, fiancé, and you watch it for like four or five hours, all of a sudden you get a little bit hooked, and you start thinking to yourself, I, I wonder whatever happened to this couple, that couple, the couple, those couple. Oh, that show's going to be on again tomorrow night? Okay, I'll go ahead and watch. That's how they hooked you, until they got you in. And right now I'm hooked with the show. So it's like, it's just pretty funny, but it's because it's like, look, man, you're 54, she's 21. Why do you think this ain't going to work? Jeez. <laughs> Come on, man. Use some common sense. You know, let me tell you something, man. If you're like my age, if you're like around my age, and I say around my age, it's like between the ages of, I don't know, man, what, let's just say 46 to 54, right? If you're around that age group, leave the leave the girls in the 20s in, alone. Leave the, leave the 21 to 29-year-old girls alone. 
I mean, hell, even leave the 30, 31, 32. Leave them girls alone, man. Leave them alone. Don't touch them. I mean, you can admire their beauty and all this kind of stuff, man. Just stay away. Remember, they're 20 and 25 and 29, 31. They're not for a reason. Think about it when you were at that age. Do you want to go back to deal with that bullshit again? I mean, damn, how good is the fucking for you to be sitting there going, yeah, okay, no, no big deal. I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and I'll put up with that shit. I mean, as long as she spreads her legs, I mean, okay, it'll be worth all the drama that she brings. I mean, oh, man, just, just, just don't deal with it. Don't deal with it. But I find the 90-day fiancé stuff, I just find it fascinating, interesting. It's just like, you know, I mean, it could be worse, right? I mean, I could be hooked on a Kardashian. So Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. Yeah, Wendell's World of Sports. That's right, Wendell's World of Sports. This poor chump from Croatia running around looking for this girl. You know, the guy's 60 years old, and she's like in her... 20s come on man come on come on i mean i feel for you bro i mean i really do i mean woman breaking your heart believe me man i've been there done that everybody plays the fool just like the neville brothers said there's no exception to the rule but uh yeah man i, I feel for you <laughs> i really do because it's like ooh, yeah i know that feeling i've never gone across the ocean to try by try to find myself a female but yeah i mean i put myself in some pretty stupid situations trying to impress a female to where it's kind of like ooh. Yeah, not the best idea, Reina Rodriguez. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So the um, Washington Chase Youngskins with the number two pick made the right decision. Remember I was talking about, hey, man, maybe, you know, there was a discussion going on that there could be a possibility that the, uh, the Washington could trade out of the number two spot and maybe collect some more draft picks because, you know, being three and 13, not one player is going to be able to change your season around that one season. So why not go ahead and build your base in terms of draft or in terms of trading away a number two pick to get more draft picks and do the same formula that a, that a Jimmy Johnson, when he was with the Cowboys and the uh, and, and Bill Belichick does. I mean, maybe Washington to try to do something like that and get out of that number two pick and maybe get themselves a franchise quarterback and a, maybe another stud defensive player and, Maybe they should just go ahead and draft Tua because he's a, he has the potential to be a generational type talent and all that kind of stuff. And you need a quarterback to win football games in this league. And the and Dwayne Haskins and Ron Rivera. I mean, Ron Rivera is not responsible for Dwayne Haskins and all that kind of stuff. So I'm glad that Washington ignored all that nonsense and got themselves the best player in the draft right now as far as the prospect is concerned. Making the right decision. Wow. Washington, Daniel Snyder, making the right decisions. Thank you very much. Not having Bruce Allen in the building. And thank you very much for hiring Ron Rivera. Very nice. In the past two seasons at Ohio State, you're speaking about Chase Young combined for 26 sacks, 35 and a half tackles for losses, eight pass deflections, seven forced fumbles in 26 games. He set a single season Buckeyes record with 16 and a half sacks in 2019 alone. So, yes, you are getting themselves, the Washington football team is getting themselves a prime, prime, prime defensive player and a prime, prime, prime football player. I mean, this is a guy who can be used as a defensive tackle, or excuse me, as a defensive uh, edge rusher. Maybe later on, maybe he could be used as a stand-up as, you know, maybe an, a linebacker on some occasions. I mean, this is what we needed. This is exactly what we needed as a team, so... We didn't overthink ourselves. We didn't try to get cute. We didn't try to win the draft. We didn't try to make headlines. We did what we needed to do. And Washington, with the selection of Young, what they're doing is they're building something, as I mentioned before in other podcasts. Washington is building something 
to what the San Francisco 49ers are doing. They're building and molding a potential uh, Super Bowl winning defensive unit, an elite defensive line. When you're speaking about pass rushers on the edge like Young and Jonathan Allen and Montez Sweat and Sweat and, and uh, uh, Deron Payne, all of those guys who are first-round draft picks who are right now all under the age of 26. Hey, look, man, because of the salary cap, you can only in football, because of the hard salary cap, you can only be dominant on one side of the football. The days of having the Steel Curtain and Franco Harris and Terry Bradshaw and Lynn Swan and and John Stallworth on the offensive side while having, you know, a team like I mentioned before on defense with the Steelers with the Steel Curtain. Those days are over, man. I mean, you have to you have to pick and choose which side we're going to be dedicating to to be elite because we can't have eight or nine Hall of Fame football players on our team at one time in their prime. It's not going to be happening anymore. So what are you going to do? So if you're a Washington or if you're the San Francisco 49ers, you're going to say, okay, where are our best players? Where are our elite potential Hall of Fame players located? They're located on the defense. Okay, so let's see what we can do to build a team that is going to be awesome on defense. And if you're someone like the Kansas City Chiefs or the Los Angeles Rams or the Cowboys or any team with a franchise quarterback right now, uh, Houston Texans, what are you going to be doing? We're going to see what we can do to build on the offensive side of the football. So because of that, like the Kansas City Chiefs, we're going to go out with our first-round draft pick and draft ourselves a running back, the only running back that was selected in the first round. You take a look at the Los Angeles Rams, you see what they did. Despite having the defensive player of the year, one of the best defensive players of his generation, Aaron Donald, on the team, what where did most of the big-time money go to? It went to Brandon Cooks. It went to Todd Gurley. It went to Jared Goff. The Rams were building on the defensive line. Now, Yes, they also made some trades to try to bring in someone like a in free agency like a Ndamukong Sue, or they went out and got themselves a Jalen Ramsey. And before that, they went out and did some other things as far as the defensive side is concerned. But for the most part, the Rams were focusing mainly on trying to build a team on offense that was going to be elite. And especially when you have someone like a Sean McVay who is known for his offensive acumen, yeah, they were going to go ahead and they were going to dedicate their financial means and attention to the offensive side of the football. Same thing now with the Dallas Cowboys, drafting themselves C.D. Lamb, franchise quarterbacks. You saw the first couple of draft picks with the Miami Dolphins and the receiver out of, uh, out of T. Higgins, the receiver from Clemson that was the second pick of the Cincinnati Bengals because they drafted themselves Joe Burrow. So, you know, that, that's what it is. So Washington, they have a defensive-minded coach in Ron Rivera. They're going to be doing what they need to do to build up that defense. And when you have someone like a Dwayne Haskins as of right now, he doesn't have, he's not showing as of right now the potential to be that guy to where, you know what, he's going to be able to put up 28, 31 points on any given Sunday. We're going to have to see as far as Washington is going to be doing to build up that defense. That's exactly what they did by drafting Chase Young with the uh, number two pick in the NFL draft. Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The Detroit Lions then went ahead and drafted Ohio State cornerback Jeff Okuda. Yeah, they could have gone with possibly Derrick Brown or Isaiah Simmons, but they went with the big, with, with their biggest need. I mean, when, when you take a look, and you take a look at the Lions free agencies, or free agents that they signed, both of them were defensive players, defensive linemen, and this is a defense, speaking of, of Detroit, that gave up the most passing yards in the league at 4,400, over 4,400. 
So if you're going to dedicate your offseason to saying, okay, some free agency, we're going to bring in some defensive linemen, defensive players, well, then that's going to lessen the need for them to maybe go ahead and draft themselves with Derrick Brown. We don't know in terms of what their thoughts and feelings were with Derrick Brown concerning Jeff Okuna. I mean, if we're going to go ahead and we're going to build through free agency to improve the defensive line, well, then, then we're going to have to say, as far as our biggest need is concerned, which one is going to be more valuable to us to draft number three? Is it going to be the cornerback or is it going to be the defensive tackle? Maybe it's a situation where you take a look and you say, okay, as far as the longevity of that position is concerned, what do we take a look at? We're drafting number three. Do we go with a cornerback? Do we go with a defensive tackle? Maybe you take a look into the history in terms of, okay, we take a look at a Derrick Brown. How many years of elite football play, glass half full type of uh, mentality, how many elite years of the defensive tackle that Derrick Brown can give us compared to what's going to be happening with Jeff Okuda at the cornerback position? If Brown is going to give you six years of elite play at the defensive tackle position and Okuda is going to give you 10 years of very good to elite play at the cornerback position, especially with the league going to the passing game like it is, and especially when you're in a conference that has a Kirk Cousins and an Aaron Rodgers, then maybe you are going to gravitate more to getting yourself a cornerback. Jeff Okuda was the highest-rated cornerback in the draft, the most likely to uh, fulfill his expectations and, f- and expil- uh, fulfill his expectations. So, you know, I, I understand in that situation. Yeah, it would have been tempting for the Lions maybe to trade with the uh, Miami Dolphins and with that pick maybe get themselves an Isaiah Simmons or Clemson and maybe another pick uh, later on down the draft. There were a lot of cornerbacks that were being taken in the first couple of rounds. So maybe there was a situation where the Lions maybe could have fought a little bit outside the box, maybe could have got a little cute, got a little fancy, and maybe traded that number three pick. But you know what, man? Right now, Matt Patricia, the head coach, and Robert Quinn, the GM, they're in no position to be cute. They're in no position to take chances. They're They're in no position to think outside the box. Their jobs are on the line, period. Through two seasons, Patricia is 9-22 and one as a coach. There is no like, well, let's just take a swing. Let's just take a chance. No, he's got to win. He's got to win this season or else he's out of a job. So I'm not going to be drafting someone. I heard this nonsense about maybe they should draft Tua Tungabailoa. Why in the fuck if you're the head coach for the Detroit Lions and your job is on the line right now, why in the hell are you going to draft somebody who can't get, who is not going to be able to help you save your job next season? I don't care. We're not even talking about you know whether Tua should play and all this kind of stuff. Tua, even if he does play, is not going to do enough. He's too inexperienced right now. He's not going to do enough to save Matt Patricia's job, no matter how much he shows. Not unless he's like Patrick Mahomes, may have that type of uh, have that type of uh, impact, which I highly doubt he will. And even with that, the team, the Lions, don't even have the, the offense to surround him. To even have an impact like that. So again, if you're Matt Patricia, you better go with someone who can win you some football games and win some football games for you this season, not next season. If I'm Bob Quinn and Matt Patricia, why the fuck do I care if four or five years down the road, all of a sudden, Tua becomes a top five quarterback if I draft him this season? I'm not going to be able to reap the rewards if I'm those guys because if I did draft Tua number three and he turns out to be a great quarterback in five years, I'm not going to be around to see it. Because the first year that he's going to be under center for me, he ain't going to help me win any games. And once again, I've been mandated by my owner, the check writer, 
then I better win some games or else I'm out of, out of a job. So fuck no, I'm not drafting Tua. Hell no. And besides, I still think you don't do Matthew Stafford like Green Bay did Aaron Rodgers on draft night. You don't do that. No, I'm not. Tua, of course, is a better, better draft pick than Jordan Love. But look, man, you don't. I, I'm, I still believe that Stafford is a guy who can be a at the end of the season, end of the season, a guy that can play 14 games, start 14 games, and be a anywhere between number nine, number 12, number 13 type quarterback in terms of how good he is, in terms of the pecking order of the best quarterbacks in the game for 2020. I still think, despite the injuries over the last two seasons, I still think Stafford can be that guy who can be a top 10 quarterback. I still think Stafford can be that guy on a handful of Sundays that could be a top four, top five quarterback in the league. Still think so. I really do. And really, why would you go ahead if you're if you're the GM and coach, you really want to be that guy who's going to let go what the city's most popular athlete right now? I mean, he's one of the, he's the all-time leading passer in Detroit Lions history. He's one of the most beloved players in that city right now. Who? What else is going on sports-wise in the city of Detroit? In Detroit, Michigan, what else is going on sports-wise that could soften the blow of the Lions getting rid of Matthew Stafford? One other athlete in Detroit right now is sitting up there holding the spotlight, holding the hearts of the fans, of the sports fans in Detroit, Michigan right now. Hardly anybody cares about the Detroit Pistons. What, you're going to gravitate toward Andre Drummond? Oops, I'm sorry. He's no longer on the team. He's with Cleveland. You're going to gravitate toward what, uh, Blake Griffin? Give me a break. Luke Kennard is going to be the guy that's going to take the mantle, a beloved player once Matthew Stafford leaves next season, if he wants to leave next season. The Pistons are a complete joke. The Detroit Tigers are one of the most poorly run franchises in sports. They lost 100 games last year. What, Miguel Cabrera all of a sudden is going to come back and do some things? The Detroit Red, Red Wings are one of the worst teams in the NHL by far. Who else in that city is going to give you help? Who else in that city is, is worth a damn to pay attention to? The only person, is, the only athlete right now going is Matthew Stafford. Who's the most popular athlete in Detroit right now? Who? What, Isaiah Thomas? Barry Sanders, Joe Dumars, Hank Greenberg, Steve Yeiserman, Ty Cobb, maybe somebody. So yeah, you don't get you don't you don't get rid of uh, Matthew Stafford bringing in Tua Tagovailoa, a guy who you don't even know is going to be able to start next season. And even if he does start, he's not going to really do anything as far as the short term is concerned to help you uh, win football game, which means in turns the head coach and the GM is going to lose their job. No, 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 no. no. And, and hey, look, you know, I can I can hear you screaming and yelling and hollering about Matthew Stafford sucks. He hasn't won anything. He's overrated. Blah 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 blah. Yeah, okay, he's had back injuries over the past two seasons. Okay, I give it to you. And guess what? Yeah, he's never he's never won a playoff game or a division title at the starting quarterback with the Detroit Lions. Okay, I get that. I understand that. He sucks. He's this. He's that. He's over the hill. He's thirty two. He's injury prone. All right, I I I get all that stuff. But you know, as I mentioned before. With Tom Brady, who's more important to the team's winning success? Is it Bill Belichick and his Tom, or is it Tom Brady? Hey, man, the same thing goes with Matthew Stafford. Let me tell you something. When Matthew Stafford, name me, name me, he had Calvin Johnson. Awesome. Awesome. Fantastic. He, he's had the weapons at the wide receiver position, and he's put up really good numbers. 
He really has. He, you don't become, you don't beat up Bobby Lane as far as being the, uh, as far as being the Detroit Lions all-time uh, passing leader. I mean, you know, you don't beat about Bobby Lane if you don't have talent. I mean, you don't you don't beat out those type of guys, baby. I mean, Scott Mitchell, no, you don't go down that route. Mm-mm. Joey Harrington, no, oh, no, sirree. Mm-mm. No, Lord. <laughs> Rodney Pete, shall I go on? Do you want me to? But uh, no, but I mean, you know, name me a running back. Name me a running back that Stafford has had that's been reliable. Reggie Bush is the only player, as far as the running back is concerned, that's ever rushed for a thousand yards while Stafford has been the uh, has been the quarterback. Well, Tom Brady hasn't had a running back. Okay, well, I never said Matthew Stafford was Tom Brady. <laughs> there's only shit. There's only one Tom Brady. You're going to start comparing everybody now to Tom Brady in terms of that's a bad mark? Like, oh, yeah, well, if Tom Brady can win Super Bowls and be great without a running back, why can't Matthew Stafford? <laughs> really? We're going to go there? In that case, every quarterback in the league should be traded. <laughs> if that, if you're going to make that argument, why well, defense have been poor? I mean, the Lions consistently have been subpar on defense while Stafford's been the quarterback. You know, it takes two sides to win a football game. You know, thank you very much. Yeah, Ndamukong Sue was the best defensive player that they had, but damn, he was too undisciplined and too unreliable with Detroit to really make a difference. So come on, man. And I always say this. For up there, up there you know, bad-mouthing Matthew Stafford, they made a huge mistake. The Lions made a huge mistake. Martha Ford and her sister made a huge mistake firing Jim Caldwell. That's another reason why Stafford should be the starting quarterback. You know, how Caldwell led the Lions to the playoffs two out of the four years that Stafford was there. If they got a raw deal against Detroit, against uh, Dallas, or the Lions should have won that game. You you can't blame everything just on the quarterback. Oh, and guess what? Here's another reason why Stafford is not going to be let go. The owners love him. Martha Ford has said many times this offseason, Stafford will be will not be cut or will not be traded. Now, you can sit there and whine and moan and complain about why the Lions suck and that's the reason why and this, that, and the other. There's another example of why the Lions are a joke and they'll never win and everything like that. That may be true, but, you know, if Martha Ford, again, the check writer, says that Matthew Stafford isn't going anywhere, guess who's not going anywhere? (laughs) So, oh, here's another reason why I forgot to mention for all those whining about Matthew Stafford should be traded. Guess what? His contract would cost more for the Lions to trade or cut him than they would just to remain on the club until twenty. Uh, remain on the club in twenty twenty. The man's making almost twenty five million dollars a year. No team is going to trade for that contract. Not because Matthew Stafford sucks and is horrible and, and is terrible, but as of right now, think about who needs the starting quarterback right now. And Matthew Stafford at twenty five million dollars, or would you take someone like say a Jameis Winston at a much more reduced price, or a Cam Newton at a much more reduced price? So even if you are a team that needs a starting quarterback, and there aren't that many, if you really take a look at it, there's only maybe two or three teams at the very most who could maybe say that they need themselves a starting quarterback. Are they really going to go ahead and make a play for a guy who's making $25 million when if they need be, can just go ahead and get themselves maybe a Jameis Winston or a, a Cam Newton for 5 to $10 million per year on a one or two year deal? No, it makes no sense. So no team is going to trade for that contract. And again, the coach and the GM, they must win now. Caldwell went 36 and 28, made the playoffs two times in four seasons. They fired him because he wasn't good enough. They bring in the defensive coordinator from New England, won the Super Bowl. This guy must be great. A guy from the Bill Belichick tree and Matt Patricia, 922 and one. 
in two, in two seasons. Nope. I would have, you know what, if I'm the Lions, you know what I would have done? I would have gone ahead and drafted Puda. Then I would have tried to do something to maybe draft a Jacob Eason or maybe a Jalen Hurts in the later rounds. I think that would have been an easier way to go or a safer way to go than drafting two at number three with a number three pick and just, and just hoping that him and him alone can save my job if I'm Patricia. If I'm those guys, I draft Okuda at number three, and then later on I get myself the quarterback for the future in Jacob Eason, a guy with some skills, a guy with some talent. And then maybe in a year or two, I go ahead and make that transition from Eason to, uh, excuse me, from um, Stafford to Eason. But who knows? The Lions stick out a lot this year. Maybe they'll be in position to draft themselves a Trevor Lawrence or a Justin Fields or someone who we're not even thinking about right now that could rise up the charts and be a be a, a quarterback for the for the future for the Detroit Lions. But nah, man, I'll leave the two of stuff alone. The Detroit Lions drafting Okuda. Jeff Okuda, the cornerback, their biggest need on that team with the number three pick. It ain't bold. It ain't sexy. It's not going to win them any of the uh, news work, news champions of the day. It ain't going to do any of that for them. But it was definitely for the Lions the right decision to make. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us talking about what's happening in the NFL draft. Maybe, possibly, the last thing that we can be talking about sports-wise other than the UFC for the rest of the year. Who knows? I hope that's not going to happen. That's why I always say be safe, be reasonable, do what you need to do in terms of listening to the doctors, listening to those experts dealing with this pandemic. Let's see what we can do to get back to some type of normalcy. I'm almost to the point now where it's like, you know what? Before I was talking about, ah, you know, I don't want sports to come back until, you know, we can go ahead and have these, you know, have it back to the way it was, which means people in the stands and all this kind of stuff. And if that means that these games and these leagues have to be postponed for a year, I'm fine with that. I said that about, what, maybe three or four weeks ago, something like that. Now, three or four weeks later, I've changed my mind after self-quarantining myself. Nah, man, I need to get back. I want to see some sports. I want to see some sports. I mean, hell, I'll even watch Major League Baseball if I have to. But I want to see some sports. I want to see some competition. I don't care if it is in an empty arena. I don't care if it is in an empty stadium. I don't care if you have to kind of adjust some things that aren't normal. I want to see some athletic competition. And I want to see it yesterday. So let's see what we can do because I want the season. I mean, speaking about the NFL and watching the NFL draft and everything, it just got my mouth a watering about the possibility of, man, I sure hope that we have football in September. I don't know. We don't know. But, man, I just hope. I'm praying to the Lord. Please let us have some football. Wendell's World in Sports, the podcast. Wendell Wallace with you speaking about what's going on. Hey, Miami drafted Tua. <laughs> How about that? You know, I mean, after everything that was all said and done, you know, tanking for Tua and the way the season started for Miami and how bad they looked, it was like, oh, yeah, 
you know, without question, these guys are doing everything that they can. Basically, they were going to be tanking when they traded uh, Mika Fitzpatrick and they were accumulating all of these draft picks and they traded Laramie Tunzel and they did all this kind of stuff to make sure that they would get themselves the number one pick because they were so sure, and everybody really was so sure that Tua was going to be the number one draft pick uh, um, at the end of the, you know, going into the 2020 NFL draft. Well, guess what, man? Brian Flores, the head coach, of the Dolphins did a great job, especially after the way they started and how embarrassing they looked early in the season. And they turned things around and got themselves into position to draft number five. And then with all these draft picks, they were going to try to see what they could do to move up and this, that, and the other. And when everything was all said and done, they didn't have to do any of that. They got the quarterback, I'm assuming, that they wanted. And they still have some picks to play with to build a team around them. Bravo. Nice job. Nice job. So, I guess... You can maybe say, even with this Tua pick, this is a franchise who you know whose head coach and GM have job security. Remember I was talking about the last thing when I was rambling on about um, the Lions, how they need to, you know, with John Matt Patricia and Bob Quinn, the fuck if I'm taking a guy who, who is going to do nothing to win me games in a year where I need to win games to keep my job. So, no, I'm not drafting Tua Tungabailoa. I don't give a fuck how great he's going to be in five years. Ain't happening. Well, this is a situation where if you're the head coach and the GM for the Dolphins, you can go ahead and you can make that. You can take that gamble because you have that job security. Brian Flores is not going to get fired unless it just goes completely off the rails. I mean completely off the rails. And when I say completely, I'm emphasizing the word completely off the rails. Brian Flores is going to keep his job. You know? So he can go ahead and he can go ahead and, and, and make that and make that deal and not worry about that. And maybe redshirt Tunga Bailoa. Or maybe have him go through the struggles of being a starting quarterback and having uh, you know, having the talent around him to have to have him not be as successful. Flores can go ahead and do that because he has job securities and I'm all here with you. So yeah, man. So should Tua play next season, this upcoming season? I wouldn't. Because that's the question now, and it's not not because of the hip injury. Most people are going to go on the assumption that this decision to play Tua next season should be made based off of the injury because they're saying, hey, you know what? If the medicals check out, he's fine and he's good and everything, he should be able to get on the field and he should be playing, right? Because if you take a look at it, as I talk like this, as I take a look at it, the only thing that's stopping Tua from possibly being the number one pick the only thing that the prognosticators and the experts and the scouts are saying, the only thing that's holding Tua back from being that elite championship generational type talent type quarterback is his injury. If that's the only thing that's holding him back, but yet the medical folks from your franchise have said that, you know what, he's good to go, this, that, and the other. And I will give the Bill Simmons podcast credit for, for giving me this thought, and this is probably true, him and Ryan Rosillo. It would make him a point about, you know what, don't don't fall into this bunk about the doctors haven't been able to check him out and everything. Yeah, I'm quite sure that, you know what, the Dolphins made sure that um, the medical staff, or their medical staff was going to do something to maybe secretly go ahead and see Tua and kind of check him out and touch him and take a look at him and do all those things before making that decision. We'll, we'll, we'll go ahead and take that risk or we'll take the, per, the, the necessary precautions to make sure that happens. So, yeah. I'm quite sure one of the things that went into the Dolphins selecting Tua is the fact that they were very, very comfortable with his 
current injury or the latest injury that he sustained uh, against Mississippi this past season playing for Alabama. But I'm not even saying that those guys shouldn't play Tua because of that. It has nothing. For me, sitting Tua out the entire year has nothing to do with an injury. I don't give a damn if he was the Iron Man. The reason why I wouldn't play Tua next season is because, again, until he has an entire quote-unquote regular offseason, I want him to go through a regular offseason before he steps foot on the field. Because as of right now, and this even goes really also for Joe Burrow and for Justin Herbert, any of these guys, I wouldn't feel comfortable putting the starting quarterback out on the field in week one if he didn't have any type of mini camp, if he didn't have any type of OTAs, if he didn't have an opportunity to go somewhere and get into some cohesion and get some chemistry developed with the wide receivers that he's going to be throwing to. I'm not going to be comfortable with any of these quarterbacks being the number one starter opening day, whenever that day is, whether it be in September or November or December, whenever it is, I'm not comfortable putting any of these quarterbacks out to play football at the NFL level by missing all of this time. I'm sorry. There's a reason why OTAs and there's a reason why training camp is important. There's a reason why these guys need to come. There's a reason why these guys need to live and breathe at the facility seven days a week, 12, 13, 14 hours a day, especially if they want to accelerate their development and be the starting quarterback and be a quarterback that can win themselves football games or win their team football games. And if Tua's not going to have that opportunity, the damn the hell with his leg, the damn the hell and every other curse word with his, with his hip, that's not the reason why I ain't playing him. I want to make sure that when he finally steps on the field, that this guy is ready in all accounts to do some work. And look, I understand what John McKay said with Doug Williams when he drafted them way back in 78, 79. I don't know how much a quarterback can learn except how to sit water and drink water and pour water while sitting on the sidelines. The only way that you get to learn how to play and the only way that you learn is to get out there and start playing. Yeah, but there have been some examples. And everybody talks about because of the salary cap and because of this, that, and the other, and because of the rookie contracts that you need to get these guys out sooner than later. I don't, I don't believe in that. I take a look at someone like a Carson Palmer who sat the entire year when, Jay, when, uh, when Kitna, John Kitna was the quarterback for a year for the uh, Bengals after they drafted him in 2003. I take a look at the time, one of the greatest quarterbacks of our generation and one of the top 15, 20 quarterbacks of all time, Brett, um, um, Aaron Rodgers. The years that he had to sit behind Brett Favre before he got his opportunity. I mean, there's been plenty of examples recently. And when I say recently, in the last 10, 15 years of guys sitting out and getting the opportunity to learn. And Patrick Mahomes didn't play a whole lot of his rookie season. He came in guns ablaze, and we see the success that he's had. So I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't be, especially with Tua, who what, going into this season would be his senior year in college. So we're still looking at a guy who's going to be 21, 22 years old. The way that the NFL is right now, the way the NFL is protecting these quarterbacks, an opportunity, the way that the signs and the way that these quarterbacks take care of themselves. I mean, we could have a situation where Tua – Takes the year off. He starts as a 22-year-old. I mean, we could be looking at him having an 18, 20-year career. The way the NFL is being constituted, the way the laws right now are being laid out for them to, to uh, protect the quarterback. Now, that might be the argument to say, well, that's the reason why you're playing the opening day. That's, it has nothing, again, it has nothing to do with protecting him. I'm not saying this Tua shouldn't play because I feel that he's injury-prone or that he's brittle or I have concern about his ankle or his hip. That's not why, again, I would be 
hesitant to not have him play. I want to have him sit. I want him to learn. And then I want him to go through an entire offseason again to get ready. Maybe, depending upon maybe two or three weeks left to go in the season, you throw him in and you give him a little bit of time. But as far as being the day one starter, no, no, I don't do that. I bring back Ryan Fitzpatrick, who knows his position, who knows his responsibility, who wouldn't, who you wouldn't have to worry about trying to sandbag. He would be an awesome teammate for Tua Tunga Bailoa as a mentor, and he would be great in that situation. And let Tua sit, and let Tua learn, and let Tua absorb, and let Tua rehab, even if he doesn't need to. And let him just learn how what it's take what it's like to be a professional on and off the field. Let him learn how to study film at, a, at an NFL level. And then after the season's over, then you go in with the mindset of saying, okay, now since we have a vaccine for this virus and it's now under control, we can go ahead and we can start getting him ready to be the starter for 2021. And I think also with the team around them, they'll be more mature to be able to protect him better to be able to uh, have him be more successful as a first-time starting quarterback if, again, you go ahead and you set Tua, set, uh, Tua out for a year. And that's exactly what they'll do. I mean, hell, man, we, we don't know. We don't know. I mean, this is supposed to be, what, a second round of the coronavirus coming soon in the fall? So it's like we it, the, 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 the league right now is in such an uncertain place. No, I don't, I don't gamble. I don't go ahead and I don't try to squeeze and fit like I'm playing a game of Twister in terms of development of Tua Tunga by Loa. Let's do the most responsible thing. Let him sit on the sideline. Let him get acclimated. Again, this is going to be a nutty year regardless of what's going to be happening. I mean, this could be a situation where we might not play a season. This could be a situation where we start the season and we have to stop it again. This might be a situation where we might start late. I, all this uncertainty on the backs of not having OTAs or training camps. No, I don't. I don't. I don't go ahead. I go ahead and I sit them, and I uh, play them next season for the 2021 season. I mean, it's not like Miami's going to be winning the Super Bowl, conference, or division championship next season. Even if Tua was a starting quarterback, they're not better than Buffalo. They're not better than New England. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. So I'm sorry. I mean, I'm not sorry. I mean, <laughs> sorry, man. I'm sorry. But, uh, you know, and then you got the others. It was, it was really an eventful draft. I just, you know, I don't have the, I don't have the time or the yearning or the energy or the interest to go ahead and talk about, you know, the 18th player drafted or the 19th or the 20th or the 25th. I don't, I don't care. I, it's just, I don't know. I don't know enough about those guys to sit there and be like, oh my goodness, what are they, you know. <laughs> Minnesota Vikings drafted who? Oh my God, I can't believe it. This is terrible. I, I, don't, I don't know enough about those guys. I mean, Justin Herbert to the Los Angeles Chargers. All right, I mean, that's, that's cool. I mean, I love the stuff about, you know, those guys are sitting up there talking about Tyrod Taylor, Tyrod Taylor, Tyrod Taylor. And look, Tyrod Taylor is another guy. Who knows his role? I mean, he played it well. Baker Mayfield was a rookie, and he was the Tyrod Taylor with the guy who started the season for Hugh Jackson, but knew eventually his time was a ticket. And depending upon what's going to be going on with the season, he's going to be going into the same situation with the L.A. Chargers. Hey, I might be the starter right now, but I know eventually this is just a placeholding spot until they have Justin Herbert ready. But you know what? On the 1st and 15th of every month, 
Tyrod's going to be getting the same amount whether he starts or he doesn't. So for him, you know what? It's a job. Keeps the keeps the thing going. But, uh, you know, for the most part, I can sit there and talk about Isaiah Simmons. Again, all the draft picks. I mean, you can find all the good things about these draft picks, but we don't know what's going to be happening three to four or five years down the road, two to three years down the road. i tell you one thing. Them big boys, those offensive tackles and such, and who were drafted in the first round, that big kid from uh, Louisville, 6'7", 364 pounds, and he, ride the, he runs a 5040. Did you take a look and see how that guy was motoring down the 40-yard uh, line? Woo! Good Lord. How would you like to be in front of that thing, man? How would you like to be in front of that human being going at that speed? You were taking a look at the, some of the highlights when they drafted them. That guy was obliterating people. Just take, talked about the evolution of the game, man. And we're speaking about last night I was watching, um, um, what was I watching on YouTube? I was watching the uh, America's Game. And I was watching the 1969 Kansas City Chiefs, the year that they won the Super Bowl. They beat the Minnesota Vikings 23-7. to And they were talking about how big their defensive line was. And they were talking about Aaron Brown, 6 foot 5, 275 pounds. And he looked, man, back in 1968, 1969, that was big. That was considered huge, Aaron Brown, you know, and... Curly Culp and, you know, all those guys. Buck Buchanan. I mean, yeah, those are some big boys. But it's like 6'5", 270. It's like this kid here from Louisville is 6'7", 364. And he ain't like refrigerator Perrier. He's not a big, fat guy. I mean, this guy is athletic as hell. 6'7", 364 pounds. I was also watching yesterday. watched a lot of old football stuff yesterday on the NFL Network. They had the uh, fearsome foursome, um, Jennifer Allen, George Allen's daughter, who used to coach the Redskins and or the Washington team and the Los Angeles Rams and stuff. And they were talking about the fearsome foursome, one of the best defensive lines in college, you know, in NFL football. And they were talking about Merlin Olsen and Deacon Jones and Rose, Rosie Greer and those guys. And they were talking about the brotherhood that those guys shared and the love that they had for each other as teammates and as men. And even when they were done playing football, the love and the brotherhood that they had and how special it was. And it was great. It really was really awesome. Very moving. But it was like, you know, those guys were considered huge. Marlon Olsen was 275 and 280. And, you know, Rosie Greer was close to 300. And uh, the, the Deacon Jones was 275. And they said, you know what? When we got to the line of scrimmage, we would stand up. And we would look dead at them because we wanted to look straight at the offensive lineman when they ran over and got in their position to, you know, to call the play because we were some big fellas. And so we used that as an intimidating factor to be standing up and menacing, looking at them and let them know that sucker is going to be a bad day for y'all. These guys were talking about, they were huge, talking about 275. Man, this one kid was for Louisville with 364. You're talking about all these other guys. You're talking about 320, 330. Damn, those are some big guys. And again, swift, nimble, fast, athletic. Just the evolution of man. Our Lord and Savior, whoever you want to save, you know, Jehovah, whoever your God is, that and the other, if you have one. The fact that he's making folks this big and powerful and strong and agile and fast, just the evolution of man itself. Damn. <laughs> And makes me think, well, let me see if, if Deacon Jones and all those guys were playing in 1968, 50 years later, I won't be around in 50 years, 
But I'm thinking to myself, what is sports and what is football and sports going to look like in the year 2070? I mean, how are we going to be talking about defensive linemen who are going to be like 7'2", 475 pounds with, with 44-inch verticals and can bench press 800 pounds? Jeez, man, it's, it was just amazing just to see how big and agile and fast those guys were because it's true. It is true. I remember when it was like, it was like unbelievable. It was like an anomaly to have a defensive or offensive line where the guys are close to 300 pounds. Close. I mean, it was like, yeah, we have two guys on our, on our offensive line. They're almost 300 pounds. What? You know, it was like one of those deals. Oh my God. This is, this is. Now it's like, if you don't have guys who are 300 pounds, you're going to get run over. <laughs> Now, 310, 315, 320, 330. Now it's like, okay, that's no big, that's okay, that's about right. Yeah, and it's not like, oh my goodness, these guys are so out of shape and this, that, and the other. No, 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 no. These guys are over 300 pounds and they're athletic. I mean, they're athletic and they're doing all this kind of stuff. Unbelievable. I, I just, it's just going to be amazing in the year 2045 where we're going to have 378 pound football players who are going to be vegans. It's like, so, yeah, all I do is eat, you know, nuts, seeds, and nuts and seeds, and fruits and vegetables, and you know, I'm, I'm six eleven, three seventy five. Never felt better. It's like, wow, wow, it's gonna be interesting, really interesting. Taking a look at the viewership before I before I get up here and take a break. The viewership numbers for the draft was was a twenty six percent increase over the twenty fourteen NFL draft, and it produced an average of twelve and a half million viewers. That stood at the record until Thursday night. Well, no, it was the, the 2014 NFL draft with the record, and this viewership beat the um, beat the all time most watched draft. But it's supposed to be. But uh, you know, it was uh, understand why. I mean, you know, we have nothing else to fucking do. <laughs> the difference between 2014 draft and 2020 draft was you could actually go out somewhere and watch the draft. If you wanted to go to a bar, if you wanted to go to your friend's house, if you wanted to go to a restaurant, if you wanted to watch it at the barbershop, if you wanted to watch it at the nail salon, if you wanted to watch it after the movies, if you wanted to do any of that stuff, you could be able to. Why? Because there wasn't a fucking pandemic going around. <laughs> so it's like, here we haven't had sports for, I don't know how long, what, almost five, six weeks? Hell yeah, we're going to be yearning for some type of sports. <laughs> I mean, hell, the NFL draft is going to be big under normal circumstances in terms of viewership. But again, without a well-known superstar football player, I mean, Joe Burrow is nice, but he's more of a one-year wonder. There wasn't a, a Tim Tebow type in the draft, or there wasn't a situation where, like, again, there was supposed to be, you know, all of this movement and all of these rumors and all of these big-time deals going on before the draft. Despite this being a virtually mundane, muted uh, draft, it got that amount of viewership. But then again, you know, when you're quarantined and you're yearning for some sports and you haven't seen some sports in a while. I mean, look, what you have the last dance. Oh, by the way, the last dance, the Michael Jordan deal, which I saw yesterday, I'll be talking about that. I just wanted, I'll be talking about that on my next podcast. I just wanted to, um, I just wanted to mainly focus on football for this one because, you know, again, this could be the last thing as far as football we're talking about of any substance uh, without question marks until, you know, for what, maybe 2021. So, I really wanted to devote all the time possible for the NFL draft. But I've got my thoughts and feelings about the Dennis Rodmans and the Chicago Bulls and Jordan and Phil Jackson and all that kind of stuff. Episodes three and four, I'll get to that on my next podcast. This will be later on 
this week. I mean, you know, it's not like I have anything to do, right? But, uh, yeah, so great viewership for the NFL draft. I guess the pandemic kind of dealt with that a little bit. But, uh, yeah, man, it was, uh, it was, it was uh, really interesting. Really interesting draft for me. And uh, we're moving on. World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Uh-oh, they're having another argument. They're getting into it. 90 days in. It's amazing. It's almost like each one of these deals, each one of these couples are up there talking about, you know what, this is a deal breaker. I got to let her know. I mean, I don't want to have any children. You know, I want to have a vasectomy. And, you know, if she can't deal with that, then, hey, you know what, the wedding's off. You know what, I have to tell her. I haven't told her yet. I've been in prison. And if she doesn't accept me for being a convicted felon or a former felon, then, you know, the wedding's off. Oh, man, you know, I mean, you know, my father's going to have to give consent in terms of us getting married. I mean, if he doesn't, the wedding's off. I don't know what we're going to do. You know, the engagement is off. This is not going to work. So it's like, all right, the mother says it's okay. All right, the girl says, I don't care if you have a vasectomy. The guy, like, I don't care if you've been in jail for years. I still love you. I still want to get together. Woo, thank goodness we got by that hurdle. Then it's like, all right, so what do you want to do tonight? Let's go ahead and eat. Oh, my gosh. I forgot to tell her that I'm not supposed to be eating at night. I mean, if I tell her, this could, end the, this could, this could, deal, this could be the deal breaker. Like, oh, come on. <laughs> it's like one thing, just when you think you've gotten by one obstacle, it's like, oh, my goodness. I, yes, I mean, you know, I, I told her that, you know, I don't want to have a, I mean, I want to have a vasectomy and not have any kids. And she says it's fine. But now I heard that she is only after me because of my money, even though there's a 35-year age difference. Well, if that's true. I really can't marry her. I really can't go anymore until I find out what's, go- what's going on. It's like, oh, my God. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But, hey, man, reality television. It's entertaining. Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. All right. Let's get into this Aaron Rodgers deal. Let's get into this Green Bay Packer deal, shall we? All right, have a seat. Come on, I'll wait. I'll wait for you. Sit down for a second. Relax. How you doing, man? You doing all right? I was, uh, how you doing with the pandemic? You doing good? Good, good. All right, you, you comfortable? All right, good. So, Aaron Rodgers, Green Bay Packers, Jordan Love. The Packers drafted Jordan Love. They actually moved up to number 26 to draft uh, Jordan Love. Uh, and Ian Rappaport... He reported, <clears throat> he reported that the Packers were adamant about trading up for Love. They didn't want to miss out. Oh, sorry. They didn't want to miss out on their potential quarterback of the future. And look, Love has his warts. He played for three offensive coordinators in four years. He led the NCAA with 17 interceptions during his final year at Utah State. 
But, you know, you're sitting there talking about, again, it's the old Patrick Mahomes deal in terms of, well, I mean, you know, he has he has this unbelievable talent and he has this unbelievable arm strength. And now because of the success of Patrick Mahomes, it's almost like, well, you know, go with your gut, go with your eye. And it's like you see all this ability, you see all this talent, you see all this arm talent, and you're like, well, you know what? Fuck Utah State and the three offensive coordinators and playing up there in Logan, Utah, wherever they play. He gets to my system. He gets into my coaching. He gets into my tutelage. He gets into, you know, what I'm talking about. You know, I can turn this guy into a franchise quarterback. So the Packers went ahead and they drafted him. And Aaron Rodgers is sitting up, saying, up there saying, what the fuck? <laughs> so, I mean, you know, look, Rodgers is 36 years old. I think he's still one of the top at least seven quarterbacks in the game. Last season, he threw for 4,000 yards. He threw 26 touchdowns. He led the Packers to a 13-3 record. He made... He led them to the NFC Championship game where they got drilled by the San Francisco 49ers. But, I mean, you know, for the most part, this is not a situation where Aaron Rodgers is on the backside of his career. Now, is he as good as vintage Aaron Rodgers is? No. But do I still think that Aaron Rodgers can still be an elite quarterback or a quarterback that can carry a team through stretches of the season for the next two or three years? Yeah, I do. Even going on to, what, age 38 and 39, I think Aaron Rodgers is still that guy that you could have a quarterback to win football games, especially when you're talking about a quarterback in Aaron Rodgers who really doesn't have the help. I mean, maybe there would be a situation down the road where they can go ahead and get themselves a true number two wide receiver or slot receiver or a cast passing tight end or a possibly a really stud running back to take some of the pressure off of Rodgers, which he's been feeling as being the main offensive weapon, especially since they got rid of some of his some of the guys that he um, went to game day with. You know, such as Randall Cobb and some others. So, I mean, Jordy Nelson and such. So, you know, maybe next year or so. But, you know, you took a look and it's like, okay, the number one goal for the Packers this offseason was to work on their, you know, the one their, their, their weakness was the wide receiver. And I guess they said, well, as much as the wide receivers were being taken, and as many wide receivers were available, we just felt that, if you take a look at value for value, that Jordan Love was a higher value pick at number 26 than any of the other wide receivers that they had available. That would have been interesting to say, see, for instance, if C.D. Lamb would have made it past the Cowboys and would have gone maybe to the number 20, 21, 22 spot if the Packers would have tried to do something to move up to select that wide receiver. But after the Cowboys selected Lamb, then I guess the Packers looked around and said, well, I mean, who really is the next best player where we're going to be drafting? It's going to be Jordan Love. And they even made the decision to try to move up. And they did move up to number 26 to go ahead and draft Jordan Love. So it'll be interesting. But then again, but you know, listening to Peter King in a radio interview, he believes Aaron Rodgers is not happy. I'll tell you what he thinks. He's pissed off. <laughs> Wouldn't you be? All the, You realize when the Green Bay Packers you know, have been sitting there for the last four drafts. And Aaron Rodgers said, give me a weapon, give me a weapon, get me some re- get me some receivers. And the Packers have never, unless you count Tyrone Montgomery, Ty Montgomery, they have not picked a wide receiver in the top 100 picks of the last four drafts when they've had a significant need, especially the last two years. Absolutely. When the Green Bay, as Peter King said, when the Green Bay Packers They've been sitting there for the last four drafts, and Aaron Rodgers said, give me a weapon, give me a weapon, give me some receivers, and they don't get them anything. 
I can understand Aaron Rodgers being pissed off. I can understand Aaron Rodgers being upset. I can understand Aaron Rodgers at age 36 talking about, hey, look, man, I mean, are you trying to get me out of here? Are you trying to push me out the door? I mean, we have a chance to win now. 13-3 NFC Championship game. I threw for 4,000 yards. I threw for 4,000 yards. Me, I, me. So now all of a sudden we're looking toward the future. They're looking at three or four years down the road. I don't have three to four years down the road in terms of trying to win a Super Bowl. Every year is important. I can understand if Aaron Rodgers had that uh, had that type of attitude. Now, you know, Love, Love said that Aaron Rodgers called him up and congratulated him and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, Matt LaFleur was talking about, I think Aaron Rodgers will be a great mentor. But look, man, the Green Bay receivers, you got Devontae Adams, and then after that, I don't know who they got. Marcus Valdez-Scantling was a guy who showed some promise. But, you know, Geronimo Allison and Alan Lazard, I mean, those are the type of guys that you're going to be winning Super Bowls with as your slot receiver, number two or number three, or number four receivers. I can I can see this. I can see where Aaron Rodgers is saying, you know what, man, fuck you guys, man. I, you know, And we really have to take a look to say, is this going to be the drafting of Jordan Love? If this is, is this going to be the breaking point of the relationship between Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers? Go back to a piece in Bleacher Report. That was written by uh, Tyler Dunn. It was about the relationship between uh, Rodgers and Mike McCarthy. He was then the coach of the of the Green Bay Packers. And basically, what I got away from that reading that article again or reading that that uh, that uh, piece again was, man, when you talk about Aaron Rodgers, man, that guy holds grudges. And as Dunn wrote, when it comes to Rodgers, grudges do not mercifully float away. They stick. They grow. They refuel. And it's like, he feels that, you know what, once you've done me wrong, once you've crossed me, it's over. It's done. We're, we're finished here. And of course, you ask his family. I don't know if he's still estranged from his family. And that happened, what, five, six years ago? But I don't know, man. There was a situation where he told his family to get lost. He Kobe Bryant's his family. And I don't think there's been any contact with him. And that's Glue's brother, Jordan. So it's like, you know, once Aaron Rodgers feels that you've done him wrong, it's hard to almost impossible to get him back. So if he feels that the Green Bay Packers did him wrong, sabotaging the remaining prime years of his career to win a Super Bowl by drafting his replacement, I don't know, man. I don't, I don't, that, that's a subterfuge any type of chances that the Packers have of winning a championship or doing well. So, I mean, you take a look. Can the Packers move on from Aaron Rodgers? I mean, he did sign a four-year $134 million contract extension that goes through 2023. He signed that in August of 2018. So you're talking about a situation where he just got paid, speaking of A-Rod, he just got paid $79.2 million over the course of the 2019 or 2018 season, and his $19.5 million bonus for the 2020 season has already been guaranteed. So what's like? So all right. So basically you're talking about 2021 after the 2021 season that – Green Bay and Rodgers can divorce and go their separate ways. So, I mean, what does that mean for Jordan Love? I'm quite sure, of course, he's not going to be playing this season. And you can sit there and talk about, well, you know, Aaron Rodgers has been injury prone and this, that, and the other. So it's like, okay, so did you draft Jordan Love to be Aaron Rodgers' backup in case he gets injured? Or did you draft him to be the face of the future? I mean, I, I know that you probably did that for both. But I'm talking about which... Which scenario led to a decision to not only draft Jordan Love, but to move up 
in draft Jordan Love? Was it the situation where, you know, you take a look at the history of Aaron Rodgers the last couple of years, we're going to need a guy. I mean, 13-3 is great, but we're going to need a guy to come in just in case Rodgers breaks his collarbone or he hurts his knee or do something to where we can bring in a quarterback that can keep this, 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 this ship afloat. Or are we talking about, well, you know, we're going to put Jordan Love on ice and we're going to maybe bring in a veteran quarterback for being Aaron Rodgers' backup just in case and we'll worry about the Jordan Love situation again once everything returns to normal and offseason and training camp and all those type of things. I wonder what the... I wonder what the immediate goals were for drafting Jordan Love, if I'm a fan of the Green Bay Packers. Is he going to be the backup quarterback this season? Is he going to be complaining? Is he is he playing at all? I mean, is that out of the picture? I mean, maybe they kind of hope healing the, I don't even know if there's a division or I don't know if there's any type of uh, mending that needs to be done on a relationship because I'm going on the assumption I'm, I'm, speculating now that Aaron Rodgers is pissed off and he's not mad at the organization. I mean, would it be something to where if Roger it, Rodgers is in that space, that the Packers bring in a backup quarterback of some veteran experience who's a quote-unquote veteran quarterback and they put Jordan Love on ice and you tell Aaron Rodgers, look, for the next year or two, you're not going to have to worry about him, you know, moving in on your job and our expectation isn't to have Jordan Love take your position in the next season or something like that. Would that help in turn of hoping to mend your relationship between the Packers and LaFleur and Aaron Rodgers, even if one exists? I don't know. I have no idea. I, I cannot believe that Aaron Rodgers would be sitting there going happy, happy, joy, joy. If you're bringing in Jordan Love this season to first be your backup and then eventually take your job in the near future. I, I don't see any way that Aaron Rodgers is going to be down or cool with that or play, you know, Mr. You know, employee of the year or something like that to deal with that. I, I, that's a mixture. If I'm the Packers, I would be very wary. I know again, that LaFleur who knows Brett Favre, not only does he know Brett Favre, he knows Aaron Rodgers a lot more than I do. He knows him a lot better than I do. He speaks to him a lot more than I do. So if he's going to sit there and say, no, 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 man, Brett, um, Aaron Rodgers is cool with that, this, that, and the other. Who might just sit there and say, no, he isn't. But it's just, all right, that's up right now. I don't know. So, again, I read that piece about the relationship between Aaron and the Packers with Mike McCarthy. And I'm telling you, don't screw with this guy. If you screw with Aaron Rodgers, you're done. Don't fuck with him. Don't fuck with him mentally like that. If you do, you are done. And I'm quite sure if you're speaking about a guy with Aaron Rodgers, like Aaron Rodgers, with the type of stroke that he has in that uh, locker room, ooh, I'm telling you one thing, man. It will be interesting if it comes down between A-Rod and Matt LaFleur. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know which button is going to work. I'm quite sure that Matt LaFleur has a get rid of Aaron Rodgers button, and I'm quite sure Aaron Rodgers has a get rid of Matt LaFleur button. Which one of those buttons work if pressed? So it will be interesting to see. What happens going forward? I mean, starting franchise quarterbacks, for the most part, the great ones, the ones who have been around forever, the ones who are going in the Hall of Fame, the one who has strong legacies, the ones who've won Super Bowls and all those other things, deep down, this is what makes them so great. They're very insecure when it comes to, you know, their spot, their position. They're very, you know, they're very uh, insecure and territorial. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, Steve Young wasn't, uh, I mean, Joe Montana wasn't all that welcoming to Steve Young. Brett Favre wasn't all that welcoming to Aaron Rodgers. 
Chris Chandler, they had to get rid of him because of the shit that they were doing, that he was doing to Steve McNair when Steve McNair was drafted. Tom Brady, Jimmy G, I mean, there's been stuff going on that, you know what, for the New England Patriots, they like to bring in quarterbacks, backup quarterbacks, who, who have no, you know, Tom Brady does not feel threatened at all by those guys. So bringing in Brian Hoyer to be up there talking about, yeah, Tom, I'm your buddy, I'm your guy, this, that, and the other. What can I do for you, big fella? I mean, to bring in quarterbacks like that, that are not supposed to be quote-unquote quarterbacks of the future, that's supposed to be the placate to uh, Brady. That was supposed to be placating to Brady because, you know, a situation where Brady was like, no, nah, man, this is my spot. This is my deal. You know what? You could even say the same thing as far as Drew Bledsoe was concerned when he got injured and Tom Brady took his spot. It was like Drew wasn't like, oh, yeah, Tom, you the man. All right, this, that, and the other. When Tom Brady was doing well after he replaced Drew Bledsoe, I mean, Drew was, you could, you could tell that Drew was like, yeah, we're winning and this, that, and the other, but, hmm. 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 You know, this admiration, ad, admiration going for Tom. <laughs> I don't know about this. I don't know about this. So, you know, fucking that happens. And you can sit there and sit there and be like, well, you know, Aaron Rodgers can learn something about how Brett Favre treated him and he couldn't, and he should, you know, go ahead and treat Jordan Love nicely and all this kind of stuff and be helping. And just like, nah, I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I just... I really don't think so. So it'll be interesting to see moving forward. But hey, I mean, the, the Packers did what they had to do. I mean, if they feel that Jordan Love, that they're quarterback of the future, and they feel that that's the best chance to get him. And and maybe it was a situation where it was like, they need a wide receiver. They need a wide receiver. They need to draft a wide receiver. Well, maybe they didn't see a wide receiver that was like going to put them over the top. Just because you need a wide receiver. And just because you draft a wide receiver, that doesn't automatically mean that that's going to be an upgrade, especially when you were drafting where the Packers were drafting. And yeah, you can take a look at examples like Michael Thomas and Antonio Brown and others who were, you know, guys who were drafted in the second, third, and fourth round turned out to be, you know, elite receivers, one of the best receivers in the game and all those type of things. But the Packers looked around and said, yeah, we were one game away from making it to the Super Bowl, but we don't see a wide receiver out there that's going to put us over the hump to where we were drafted. I'm quite sure if there was a wide receiver out there that the Packers had scouted and taken a look at and said that this is a guy that we could use that could really help us win Super Bowls next year or the year before or the year after that, I'm quite sure they would have drafted him. But they looked around. They didn't see anybody of that ilk. They looked around after that and then said, well, who's the best guy available? Jordan Love. Okay. We know how important the quarterback position is. Okay. We'll have the opportunity to bring him along slowly. We're not going to have to force feed him. We don't have to rush him. Okay. You know, hopefully, maybe, maybe just through osmosis that he can learn something from one of the greatest quarterbacks of his generation and Aaron Rodgers, even if Aaron Rodgers does snub him. Okay. I mean, you get him under the tutelage of a quarterback coach guy like Matt LaFleur, who's coached quarterbacks. Okay. Let's go ahead and do that. And, you know, this is the big boy league. As I mentioned many times, I don't care who you are, whether it was Peyton Manning or Johnny Unitas or... Tom Brady or whoever, Joe Montana. I mean, eventually your time's going to come up. Eventually. It might take 10 years. It might take 15 years. In Brady's case, it might take 20 years. But eventually you're going to have to move on. That franchise and that quarterback is going to have to move on, either by divorce, either either by um, uh, retirement or something. It doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter how many Super Bowl rings you've won. doesn't matter how many yards you've passed for doesn't matter any of that stuff. Eventually, you're going to have to be replaced. 
And at least the Packers aren't thinking about short, short term. I mean, the situation where you get through 20 and 21 and then possibly we'll talk there. Who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? So I, 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 don't, I don't think that was a huge deal. Now, I, again, I understand where Aaron Rodgers is coming from. I understand Aaron Rodgers' point of view. But if, we're, if I'm an organization, if I'm holding a football team or in this situation, yeah, I, I, take, into that, I take that into account. You know, you always have to be looking forward. You don't sit there and you don't make moves. And that's the difference why there's so many coaches in all sports. That's why coaches don't make great GMs. That's why Bill O'Brien sucks as a GM. Because he's thinking about the 2020 season. And maybe possibly the 2021 season. But that's, that's it. That's as far as Bill O'Brien is going. Bill O'Brien is making moves to win now. And if you're an organization that wants to sustain excellence and sustains opportunities to win championships and remain elite, you can't look just one year down the road. You have to look three, four, five years down the road. Because believe me, don't believe me, believe those who actually do the job. That shit comes up quick. And if you're sitting up there talking about where we're going to bring in all the chips and we're going to you know, push all our cars to the table, if I could use that cliche, to win in 2020 and 2021... Well, what happens after 2022? Or what happens after 2021? Then you're screwed for the next 7, 8, 9, 10 years. So, I mean, less need in the Rams. They're looking at a possible situation like that. They paid all this money to Jared Goff. They paid all this money to Todd Gurley. They paid all this money. And now they're screwed. What are you going to do now with Jalen Ramsey? Are you going to pay him? I mean, you traded for him. You might as well. One of the best cornerbacks in the game who's young. You might as well. But the Rams played themselves, screwed themselves, because they gave a contract extension to Jared Goff when he didn't need it. They paid all that money to Brandon Cook. They paid all that money to Todd Gurley. They gave away all those draft picks to go ahead and draft and get themselves uh, Jalen Ramsey and some others. And now look at them. Their offensive line stinks. They don't have a running back. Their quarterback has progressed and who, uh, regressed. And who's going to be catching passes from them at the, court, at the, wide, at the wide receiver or tight end position? So you, you have to look you have to look down the road. The reason why Bill Belichick tried to accumulate as many draft picks as possible. Future future draft picks and, and, and such. Because he knows you build that foundation for down the road. And that's exactly what the Green Bay Packers did in drafting Jordan Love. They feel that they have a guy with some time and some nurture and some Development can be a guy that can win them win them a Super Bowl. Maybe not for 2020, maybe not for 2021, maybe not even for 2022. But guess what? After a few rough seasons, Aaron Pack, Aaron Rodgers getting into the uh, football game of the starting cornerback, I mean, he established himself pretty quickly as being a really good cornerback. So there has been examples as early as Green Bay that shows that, you know what, sitting a quarterback Letting him nurture, letting him get along, letting him learn. It's not always a bad thing.
Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Hey, let me end with this. I know I'm going pretty long with this one, but, you know, as far as, as, far as football is concerned, man, this is the last time I might be talking about the sport in terms of, like, X's and O's and team building and getting better and all this kind of stuff. This might be the last time we talk about this for a long time. So, you know what? I'm, 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 going, to, I'm going to empty the chamber, shall we say, in terms of what we're going to be talking about NFL-wise. But uh, I just want to end with this because, as you know, the return of the Gronk, return of the Gronk, Rod Gronkowski going back to the or coming back to the NFL unretiring. Well, what he's going to do with a 24-7 title, huh? That's going to be interesting. But um, he's coming back to play for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. His homeboy, Tom Brady, uh, said, come on back. He's going to come on back. And the only reason why I bring this up is because it's, you know, some people out there are trying to make it an indictment on Bill Belichick in terms of, oh, see, I told you, Bill Belichick stifles his players and this, that, and the other, and Tom Brady was the only guy and this, that, and the other. That's so much bullshit. That's so much of a false narrative. It talks about, oh, you know, Bill Belichick, the, the, the culture is not fun. You don't have any fun with your Bill Belichick. You see that? I mean, Rob Gronkowski got tired of Belichick's bullshit in the Patriot ways, and he wasn't having any fun. He was miserable, and because Belichick was so mean and so demanding and this, that, and the other. So Rob Gronkowski quit, and he got away from Belichick, and now he's, oh, man, now he's got this renewed vigor and enthusiasm, and he loves the game again, and he loves life, uh, uh, life again, and, and now he's going to have so much fun with Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and football's going to be fun again and all this kind of nonsense. Get the fuck out of here with that bullshit. So funny. But they always say that, oh, you know, New England Patriots, you don't have any fun when you play for that organization. Jeez, I mean, could you imagine you know, playing for Bill Belichick? I mean, how you must hate going to work. Or it must be such a chore, such a ugh. Well, I mean, l- let me ask you something. Would you rather be happy winning one championship or being miserable winning six? I mean, because that's the narrative, right? Oh, you know what? I mean, yeah, you know what? Those guys win championships, but they're they're pretty miserable. Wow. So if that's really your thoughts and your feelings as a football player, that you would rather be happy and not win championships or I don't know if the word is miserable, but work hard and do what you need to do to win six. If that's your mentality, then you know what? You're right. Maybe you don't belong. Maybe you don't belong on the New England Patriots. I mean, Bill Belichick would be like, you know what? If that's your attitude, then guess what? We don't want you anyway. I mean, I, I, I don't. I don't understand this nonsense. Could someone please name me a team or a sport or wherever where winning championships and building a dynasty was fun and it wasn't hard? That's basically what people are talking about where they say the culture of Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots is not fun there and this, that, and the other. That's really what they mean. It's like you should have fun and it should be easy for you to win six championships in 20 years. Name me a name me a dynasty, or name me a really great coach who made it really easy on their team to win championships. Name me a squad that won a championship where they said, "Wow, that was easy and it was fun." Name me that. Go in the annals of football. You think playing for Vince Lombardi was fun? You think playing for Chuck Knoll was fun? You think you think playing for Don Shula was fun? You think playing for Jimmy Johnson was fun? You think playing for Bill Parcells was fun? You think playing for Bill Waltz was fun? You think it, they were just it was just a just a good old time 
Well, you think those guys came in at 10 o'clock, bullshitted around, you know, hit the whirlpool a little bit, ran a couple of sprints, hung around, told some jokes, watched some things, and then went home at 2 o'clock in the afternoon? Kicked back with the family, screwed around on their wives, spent a little time with their kids, and then repeated the whole routine again, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? That, that's really what you think it was? Of course, Bill Belichick is demanding. You can't win six championships without being demanding. You can't win six championships without working hard. Of course. Guess what, y'all? You can't do anything in life of any consequence without it being hard. Success is hard. Being a success and being at a high level of success and doing it consistently year after year after year is hard. Unless you win the lottery or inherit the money, becoming rich is hard. Now, I wouldn't know because I ain't rich, but I'm quite sure you could ask many rich people who has earned their money, not having their daddy given them a million dollars and cheat and steal and lie their way to making more. But for those entrepreneurs who have built their businesses, who have built their empires, who have built their success stories, ask them, is it hard? Is it easy? Did you have a lot of fun on the way? Of course they'll tell you no. And when you're speaking about Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots who've won six championships and been to the Super Bowl nine times in 20 years, that ain't easy. That ain't fun in terms of, oh, wow, this is such an easy blast. No. But Bill Bell, uh, Bill Parcells, again, Bill Parcells, he was an easy guy to, to, as a coach. I was watching America's game, 1972 and 73 Miami Dolphins. And Larry Zonka and Mercury Morris and Bob Kutzenberg and all of these guys, they were, you know, when they were talking about how hard they had to work, they were talking about what a mean son of a bitch Don Shula was, how miserable of a human being he was and how hard he was to deal with when they lost. And they were talking about how grueling and tough their, their practices were. They were talking about, look, we didn't, the reason why we won all those football games in 1973, the reason why we went undefeated, is because we worked harder and longer than anybody else on in the NFL. That's how we were able to win those Super Bowls. That's how we were able to go 17-0. and Because Don Shula was unrelenting. We won the championship in 73. We come back, or 72, we come back next season. He's even harder on us. We go through film sessions, and he's supposed to cussing us out and chewing us out. We left the film room talking about did, did we win this game? The bottom line is, yeah. So if you want to win championships, it's hard. It's really hard. So this narrative about, well, you know, hey, Ron, if Rod Gronkowski wants to have a good time and and yoke it up and laugh and do all this kind of stuff and make it be easy, I mean, he can go to Tampa Bay with that attitude. I bet you one person who ain't going to accept that is Tom Brady. I bet you. And much as, oh, Rod Gronkowski, Bill Belichick choked the fun out of all of this kind of stuff, Watch how many Tampa Bay Buccaneers who haven't won jack shit are going to be leaning on Tom Brady and Rob Gronkowski to, Rob Gronkowski to say, hey, man, how did Bill Belichick do it? So tell us tell us the Belichick way. Tell us, you know, in the meetings, how did he go about his meetings or this or that? And this? How do you prepare? How should I prepare? This, that, and the other. Ask, watch how many Buccaneers who are yearning to have the success that Brady and Gronkowski had when they were with the New England Patriots. Just just take a look to see how willing they are to, to go to be successful, doing it the hard way. 
if it means winning a championship, if it means winning Super Bowls. Believe me, it's don't believe me. I never played the I never played the game of football at that level. But it's like, yeah, it's anything that you want to take this to heart, kids. Anything that you want to do in life, it's hard. It's really hard. Life is really hard. And if you want to be next successful, if you want to be like the Vince Lombardi Packers, if you want to be like the Chuck Noll Steelers, those guys will probably tell you, yeah, it was hard. The Pittsburgh Steelers in the 1970s who won those championships, those four Super Bowls, yeah, it was hard. The Vince Lombardi Packers, any of them still living, will probably tell you, yeah, winning all those championships, it was hard. Paul Brown, Otto Graham winning all those championships in the AFL and then moving over to the NFL, what, seven, eight championships in ten years? Yeah, it was hard. Yeah, Paul Brown was a son of a bitch. But guess what? We won. If you can show me a coach who's easy on his players and doesn't have him work hard and can still win championships? I'm quite sure that every player in the world would want to flock and play for that team, play for that organization. So please, great Popovich isn't hard. Phil Jackson isn't hard. Winning championships isn't hard. I mean, watch the Chicago Bulls' last run. That wasn't hard. That wasn't difficult. So please, I just old narrative about woohoo, Ron Gronkowski. Yeah, I mean, you can only stay a certain amount of time with the um, with the New England Patriots. Tom Brady spent twenty years with one team. Who else has spent that? Who else has spent that many years with one organization being underpaid like he was? What maybe Jordan, who then made thirty three million dollars off the court. Now you could say Giselle makes you know decent coin also, so maybe that's another reason why Tom was cool with the money that he was making. Yeah, but for the most part, I can only think about maybe Jordan and Tom Brady, who played for one organization for as long as they did while being underpaid. So I, you know, I, 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 I don't, I don't get this whole Bill Belichick and he sucks the life out of you and it's no fun and this and the other. You know, you, if you want to. If you want to have fun and not win championships, then yeah, maybe you should go to another team. But I'm quite sure the other folks would gladly take a little bit of adversity. Be as hard, you know, it's hard to win a championship. It's hard to win a championship. It should be also hard for losing, right? I mean, I never heard of a never heard of a, of a of a player of any worth, of any ilk, who sits there and says, "Yeah, you know, we're losing and we're not making the playoffs and we have no chance to win the championship." But you know what? That's okay because we're having fun. Going seven and nine and eight and eight and four and twelve and five and eleven every year. Yeah, it sucks. But you know what? I'm having some fun. Right, get out of here. All right, there we go. I want to thank everybody for listening to the program. Oh, I'm back. To, I'm gonna get back and watch our boy here, this guy Larry and this Brazilian gal who doesn't speak any English. The Brazilian gal who doesn't speak any English, who's 21 years old. Here, this guy, Larry, who I guess says he's in prison or something like that. He's 34 years old. He doesn't speak Brazilian, so they have to communicate with each other through, I guess, some app on the phone where he types it in. And Oh, that's what she's trying to say. <sighs> you got to love it. You got to absolutely love it. Thank you very much for listening. Be safe. Be well. Be good. Take care of yourself. Take care of those who are around you. Stay true to who you are. See you when I see you. Listen to the podcast. Get me out of here, man. Get me out of here. Peace. 